Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1402 to 1415. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1402. Words of Power, written by Aranya P. Words hold power. A combination of words naturally holds even greater power. With the right combination of words and a strong enough will, one could weave the very fabric of reality to their will. This is especially true to the magically sensitive elves of the eternal kingdom of Aborea. When Alvin Mage weaves words together into power that could shape the world around them, they'd call it an incantation, a casting of spells like any rules regarding power. You need to have power to spend power. And this was a problem for them, for elves themselves naturally spend all of the self-generated powers and keeping them forever young. Their skins flawless and their moves ever so graceful. It was a blessing and a curse at the same time. For the powers that came from the earth, the wind and the trees were simply not enough to supply their demands. Unlike humans. Humans, on the other hand, have no natural ways to spend their self-generated power. So they keep building it up until the moment they die and expel their generated powers back into the world once more. From ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as they would say. Such a waste. Such a waste. This is where High General Elithareth Lan Elithor comes in, leading the first undefeated legion of eternal light for what will be their tenth and grandest reaping event. An event of the highest honor where warriors and mages of the kingdom would go through the portal created and held open by the royal magi and release any and all humans they could find of their short pitiful existence and collecting the liberated powers to be put into the grand nexus within the grand city so that it may forever keep the power flowing. There were voices of concerns, rumors that the powers are actually souls of humans, and this is no better than necromancy. But everyone needed the power for their daily lives, so what must be done will be done. High General Elatharis Lan Elathor wasn't always a High General, though he was the son of one. He started his first reaping as a simple captain of the Shield Mages, whose job was to keep the Legion protected from any and every unexpected problem. It was seen as a rather lowly position, where most of the time was spent shielding the Legion from the rain and dust from wherever the portal sensed them. The humans had never fought back effectively. Not against the likes of the great vanguards, anyway. It was always slaughter. Until it wasn't. A few reapings ago, the humans started fighting back. Elatharis could remember it like it was yesterday. It started small. The humans hadn't run away so much that time. And in their rough, vaulty hands were ugly imitations of an elven bow. It started as rocks, then there was crude arrows and spears that were flung at the advancing legion. 
It was useless, of course. None of their primitive weapons could pierce the great shield, held by a full battalion of shield mages, and the slaughter continued to power the kingdom. The reaping after that changed everything. When the legion came looking for an easy harvest, the humans turned. They were no longer the harmless, pitiful field of wheat waiting to be reaped. They were warriors. Warriors, who was meant in the loosest sense of the word. Some were clad in crude armor, others had nothing but their wooden clothes, armed with weapons forged from metal, dug from the ground and smelted in rudimentary fire. Their attempts to fight back were still pitiful. Their columns were just a joke, and their infantry died in droves, and their cavalry burned as they charged through bolts of lightning, fire, death, and various other things that meant them harm. But even as their pitiful attempt to fight back was, they changed the reaping forever. No longer do elves go in expecting fields to reap, but now they expect an army to crush. It was easier that way. You don't need to march so far looking for enough humans to kill and collect their power when there's literally an army right in front of you for the picking. Not to mention how much more honorable and exciting one could make it sound. Turns out stories of battles are quite popular with the ladies. This boosted the number of elves who wished to be amongst the participants in the next reaping considerably, which was it a surprise. What was a surprise, however, was when the next reaping came and the first legion marched against the human army once more. They found that humans do indeed have magic. Using an excuse of an imitation of one of their battle staves, the humans yelled their words like as savages they are. Short, simple, and barely any effect. Fire! They shouted, and their staves erupted with power, invisible force smashing against the shield again and again. But it held. Fire! They shouted their word of power, and a series of what could only be called as large, wheeled metal battle staves erupted with their terrible power, sending imperfect spheres of stone and metal through the air and smashing into the shield. But it was still no match for the shield company, whose power bounced away all harm, allowing the Legion to march up close enough to unleash the real power upon the ranks of the humans, resulting in a bountiful harvest. Although it was the first reaping that the Legion lost some elves, it was only a few, mind, less than a dozen and their bodies were carried back home like heroes with full military honor and they grieved for weeks in honor of fallen comrades. It had been some time since that battle. General Elatharis Lion Elathor pulled himself back out from his daydreaming of the upcoming glory of battle. Mounted upon his demigruff, he could see the human army just up ahead, on top of a long length of a hill, far less numerous than what had faced before and hunkered down in the dirty halls. High grounds mattered little, for he was sure the victory is certain. He ordered his army to form up and prepare for battle, and now famous shield company strengthened their shields. Then the hills 
lit up. Terrible, earth-shaking thunders roared from the hill as the human mages unleashed their deadly sorcery. Great, thick bolts of power streaking through the air and smashed into the matrixes of wards and shields to the shock of every elf present. The shields that have never failed them, never faltered, then shattered under the awesome power of human sorcery. Thinking quickly, the High General barked out his orders using his magically enhanced voice that thundered over the battlefield. Shield walls were formed as the vanguard began their unstoppable advance towards the human's defensive position. The hill lit up once more. Countless cracks were heard through the air as bolts of raw power were unleashed upon the hapless legion below like a horizontal rain. Then... Long arrows of magic that pierced the vanguard shields, which were sung from green glass that have turned away even the mightiest sword blows and have deflected any spells and weapons used by humans before. The ranks of the vanguard soldiers were slaughtered in a similar fashion to how they slaughtered humans. Illaroth Lan Illithal did not feel like a high general when he uttered his incantations of a personal shield spell. The spell, perfected over hundreds of years, was a powerful one, and deflects humans' impossibly fast magical arrows. He tried to rally his troops, but he found that his voice was overshadowed by humans' magic. He had to shout at the demigroth knights to follow him towards a glorious charge. It was the only way to restore the morale of his army as they were cut down like grass. These knights formed a formation behind him, preparing for a charge. However, the charge never got off, as the very earth around them erupted, throwing elves high into the air, more often than not in pieces. High General Elitharith Lan Elithor knew at that moment that the battlefield was no longer theirs, his army lying broken and bleeding on the ground. Those who died were the fortunate ones. Everything was wrong. He was supposed to win. The High General couldn't do anything. No orders came to mind, not ones that would help the situation. He was waiting for himself to wake up from this nightmare back at the capital, a day before the reaping. Yes, he must have had one nectar too many. This couldn't possibly happen. It couldn't be real. Relief flooded through his body, and Elitharis began to laugh. His demographs head cocked slightly at him, waiting for its master's command. Then, without warning... Its skull burst into a fine mist of several shades of red and pink. Elitharis' shields shattered from an unbelievably strong invisible force that tore through all of his defensive matrixes. And the magical force continued until it ripped his left arm right out of its socket, throwing him off of his now headless demigriff. Pain jolted him awake, and he meekly mumbled words of healing to stop the bleeding before exhaustion took a hold of him once more. Perhaps this time, he'll wake up from this horrible nightmare. Elitharith woke back up, but his back was aching. He was not laying on his comfortable bed back in the Grand City, but still in the same patch of dirt and grass where everything went wrong. 
He couldn't feel his left arm, and he wasn't sure if his legs still worked. Everything hurt, and he could barely utter any words at all. His eyes worked frantically, looking for any sign of salvation, only to spot a figure walking towards him. And it wasn't an elf. The High General struggled to prop himself up with one arm, wheezing and gasping for air as a human mage approached him and drew his battle wand, an ugly, unrefined, strange-looking wand made from some wood Elitharis couldn't recognize. Elitharis' eyes crossed as he looked at the wand. Let up with the human, and Elitharis land Elithor, High General of the First Undefeated Legion of the Eternal Light, felt fear. Wait, stop, I have gold, I have women, I'll give you anything, just please don't kill me, please. Elitharis tried, pleading for his life through choked breaths as he tried to push himself away. The human mage didn't even hesitate as he uttered his own words of power. The United States of America does not negotiate with terrorists. The last thing, Elitharoth Lan Elithor, High General of the First Undefeated Legion of the Eternal Light, saw was the human's battle wand discharging its full power right between his eyes. But that light, whatever worries or fear he had, was finally left behind him, smeared all over the ground. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1403 Protectors, written by Weirdo5255 Harry poked little chunks of meat in his bowl with a tentacle, trying to look as if he wasn't hungry. He was molting, though, his feathers sticking out in odd directions. Last year, when he had been growing, he had devoured anything I'd put in front of him. The same glint was in his eyes now, but he wasn't eating. Jallison shifted on her hind legs and nervously patted down her fur. She was eyeing her food as well, but hadn't taken a bite out of the vegetables in her bowl yet. Putting my tablet down on the table, I moved my eyes between the two of them. I don't think I burned the food. Did I spy something incorrectly? Harry's feathers drooped as he smacked as he snapped his teeth together. Where is your food, mother? I smiled, showing my teeth. I ate while I was cooking. I'm full. Eat your food. It's getting cold. Jallison shifted on her quadrupedal blower body, putting her forward-clawed feet upon the table, raising her small head so that it was level with my own. Her eye stalks waved from side to side as she let out a low, keening wobble. You did not eat. I was watching you. I kept the smile on my face. Leading forwards, I pushed her plate towards her. Eat. I'm fine. Harry clicked in annoyance and pushed his food away. It was his favorite, overcooked cuts of beef and bones in broth. Jallison put her hand on her own plate of steamed vegetables, fighting my grip. She pushed it away to join Harry at the center of the table. I looked at the two plates of food for a moment. Do both of you want to be grounded? Eat your food. Harry clicked his teeth again. Not until you do, mother. Shifting in my seat, I picked up my book again. Human adults can go for a long time without food. You're both crying, and you are going to eat, right now. My statement was punctuated with a growl from my own stomach. I closed my eyes, ignoring it. Mother, whispered Jallison, 
her eye stalks twitching towards the sound. Her ears were in them somewhere. I had never really figured out how they worked. Eat, I growled. Leaning back from the table, I closed my eyes, waiting. She whimpered, and I heard a claw scraping on the top of the table, gouging into the old wood. The sound of crunching vegetables filled the dining room. I kept my face impassive. Jala, hissed Jerry. I'm hungry. Mother says it's fine. She's lying. You can hear her stomach moving. She is hungry. Opening my eyes, I picked up my tablet and turned to the next page of my book. E. Terry, you need to be strong to protect your sister. Harry's feathers drooped at that. His eyes flicked quickly back and forth between me to his sister and then to the food in front of him. I was being mean putting it like that, but it would convince him to eat. Picking up the bowl, Harry opened his maw and quickly poured the mixture into his mouth. The pouch around his neck quickly extended to hold all the food. The two children looked at one another and then at the empty plates. They were both still hungry, but that had been all the food I'd managed to get. They both knew there wasn't a point to asking for more. I smiled at the two. I cooked. Can you two handle cleaning up the table? Jallison groaned. The unwillingness to do chores was something universal in children. It took her hours to clean her nest, and Harry had never once in his life managed to make up his bed in the morning. We can do it, mother, Harry said. Grabbing his and Jallison's balls, Harry dashed into the kitchen. Jallison let out a disgruntled chirp and followed. I smiled as a claw scrabbled to find purchase on the floor. She still hadn't learned how to move quickly on the old tiles. My stomach growled again and a wave of light-headedness swept over me. I hadn't eaten since yesterday's lunch at work. The cut in the meal tokens that were being allotted to everyone and then dividing the food that I could get into three was unsustainable. I was going to have to get more meal tokens. The quickest ways were more dangerous than the factory. If anything happened to me, the two would be trapped and starved or shot when they built the, the courage to leave the house. A knock on the door interrupted my thoughts, and I stood. I heard a plate hit the floor in the kitchen. Harry burst back into the small dining room, a tentacle around one of Jellison's legs dragging her along with him. His eyes were wide in fear. I pointed at the wall. His feathers flattened slightly, and Jellison warbled in distress. Quiet, hissed Harry, as he tugged the small hatch open and pushed his sister into it. He glanced back at me, teeth chittering in distress. Go. I'll open it when it's safe. Harry's feathers were completely flat now, but he followed the command and closed the hatch. Moving to the door, I brushed at my stained jumpsuit, trying to make it somewhat presentable. Looking through the people, I winced. Damn it! Mr. Tyler was standing on my front porch, dressed in one of his signature pre-invasion suits. His pepper-gray hair cut short and beard carefully sculpted to make it look as if he did nothing to take care of it. A bodyguard was standing off to his side, one of the Hellkick weapons in his hands. The barrel was glowing a soft green, set to stun. Hannah, I heard something crash. Are you okay? Asked Mr. Tyler. I unlocked the door and pulled it open. I'm fine. You just surprised me as all. Dropped the plate on my foot. Mr. Tyler nodded. Sorry about that. He pulled a few coins from his jacket and held them out. Hesitating, I took them. Thank you. Mr. Tyler stepped inside, the bodyguard shadowing him across the threshold. What can I do for you? 
I asked, still at the door. I wanted to check up on you. I promised your mother I would look after you. I closed the door and crossed my arms. Because you've been doing so well checking up on me. Mr. Taylor chuckled. <laughs> yes, well, uh, it's better to see how far people will be able to go on their own merits. You certainly have done well for yourself. Looking around, Mr. Tyler moved and sat at my table. In the same seat Harry had been in. Studiously, keeping my eyes away from the hatch in the corner, I sat down at the head of the table. I'd like to think so. I think you have as well, but your talents are being wasted on the factory floor. Mr. Tyler leaned forwards and thumbed a rough edge on my jumpsuit sleeve. I steeled myself and kept my arm in place. But, like you've said, I've earned it. It pays the bills, keeps me comfortable. Mr. Tyler looked around the room. His eyes roamed over the wall and a few pictures on the wall. He looked at the kitchen and finally settled his gaze on me. I know you've been asking for additional meal tokens, sir. I can get you those if credits aren't enough, said Mr. Tyler. He looked around the room. For uh, whatever reason you need them. I narrowed my eyes. I'm content with my job as it is. Mr. Tyler nodded and stood up. Walking around to his bodyguard, he plucked a weapon from him. Holding the weapon up, Mr. Tyler set it on the table. I'm not asking you to pick up one of these and fire it, Hannah. Mr. Tyler slid his hand down the gun and flicked the release, popping the energy core out of it, moving efficiently. He broke down the gun into its parts, separating them into two piles on the table. Human and alien. But those of us who aren't fighting need to help the ones who are. Assembling low-grade power cells is beneath you. Humanity needs people like you and your mother to ensure we remain safe. Reaching out, I picked up one of the power control circuit boards in the human pile. My mother created weapons to protect me, to protect humanity. I barely remember the invasion. Mr. Tyler slowly nodded. Don't try to. Most of us who lived through it would rather forget. The courtroom, they were inhumanly vicious. He looked at the power cell in his hands. The handheld weapons were the least dangerous. We could overpower the shields they wore with concentrated fire or grenades. Those of us fighting in the trenches were lucky. The biological and chemical agents... Mr. Tyler paused and shook his head. I... I lost my entire family to those. Mr. Tyler put the power cell on the table. Your mother and the people like her who worked to find cures to the viruses they unleashed. How we could use their own technology against them. They were the real heroes. All I did was hold the line. Looking at the chip in my hand, I nodded. They wanted to protect what they had, save the children, make sure that they had better lives. What parent does it? asked Mr. Tyler. I looked at him. Can you say that's what humanity is doing now? I crushed the chip in my hand, ignoring the biting pain as the circuitry cut into my hand. Mr. Tyler's face hardened. We are defending ourselves. When the concentration camps, invasions, and wars of extermination done anything but create more strife in our own history. Mr. Tyler pursed his lips, turning back to the table he quickly reassembled the gun, careful to leave the power cell out. Without the limiter, he was in danger of exploding. They attacked us without provocation, tried to exterminate us, Hannah. So, we should do the same, 
I asked, voice low. The frame of the gun creaked as Mr. Tyler crushed it between his hands. Ideally, no. In a perfect world, it would be a resolute no. He stood up and handed the gun back to his bodyguard. We don't live in a perfect world, though. It's kill or be killed. The corporum left their people behind. Who elites them? They're heartless or trying to take advantage of our mercy. Humanity's priority should be survival. If we must commit atrocities to guarantee that, so be it. I won't kill till I have to. If I develop weapons for you now, they'll be used to kill because the man wielding them wants to. Not because he has to. They'll be used to kill an alien starving in a cell after some doctors finish cutting him up. Mr. Tyler brought a hand to his face and groaned. If we wait to kill until we have to, there is a much higher chance that we'll lose. I pointed at the door. I'd rather lose than become like the corporum. Mr. Tyler stood and walked towards the door. He paused at it. Flowery ideals won't save the future of humanity, Hannah. I sharpened my gaze. Actions will. Leave. Mr. Tyler shook his head and opened my door, his bodyguard catching it, respectfully closing it behind him. I didn't move, listening for the slight hum of his transport taking off. Slumping back down into my chair, I turned my eyes to the wall. It's safe to come out. Harry slowly pecked his head out of the cubby. One of Jellison's eye stalks poked out beside him. Mama, he asked, his voice shaky. I was on the floor in front of them in another moment. Both were crushed to my chest, my arms holding them tight. The familiar feathers, rough skin, claws, temperature, and the feel of my children. Tears collected in my eyes and put my face in Harry's feathers. He hadn't called me Mama since he was small, and I'd barely been more than a child myself. You two were so good at being quiet. Harry moved a tentacle up to my face, wiping away one of the tears. You never told us what Mother did that uh, helped make the weapons that got rid of the corporum, whispered, whispered Harry. I pulled back from him and wiped away my eyes, not sure what to say. She was protecting me, Harry. Like you protect us, asked Jellison, her voice keening. Like I protect you. I looked at the two of them and smirked. You're not human. The two small aliens blinked and looked at one another. We know, Mother? said Harry, speaking as if I was a child myself. Yes, well, to most humans, something not human is corporum. Harry's feathers popped up. We're not corporum, they're monsters. Jellison's eye stalks retracted inwards and her claws scraped the floor, cutting into it. I'm not a monster. Fresh tears welled up in my eyes and I nodded. No, you're not. Taking a tentacle from Harry and a claw from Jellison in my own hands, I looked at the two of them. What you look like on the outside doesn't make you a monster. It's who you are on the inside it does. Do you understand? Jellison let out a happy chirp. Yes. Harry's grip tightened on my hand. He looked at the floor for a moment. Does that mean humans can be monsters? Merrily, I inclined my head. Humans can be monsters, just as terrifying as the corporum. Harry's feathers flattened to his body and his face sobered. I sniffed and stood, letting their hands fall from mine. Now the both of you did exactly what you were supposed to. I have a chocolate bar hidden away. Do you two want to share it? Their faces brightened, and they began to dance on the spot, talons and tentacles flopping about in a happy, 
Renzi. You get a piece too, mother, said Harry. Yes, sir. We'll all share, said Jallison. I leaned down and hugged both of them. We'll all share the chocolate. Then of story. Tales from Outer Space 1404. Story number one. Shotgun fantasy. In a world where humans can't perform magic, elves and other races have reigned supreme for millennia. Rumors have spread lately of a human invention that might change this. These guns were underestimated by everyone except the elven merchant who saw an opportunity for profit. Written by that 2009 weird emo kid. Laughter echoed through the crystalline halls of the Imperial Palace for the first time in centuries. Apparently, humans were accelerating tiny spheres of metal at their enemies through a barrel using controlled explosion to fuel its strength. They hadn't moved past blow darts or throwing rocks. Wrangle waited over the council to regain their composure. He'd never seen them display this much emotion. They couldn't grasp the danger of the upcoming conflict, a folly of their youth. In fact, this meeting only bolstered their confidence. Wrangel sighed. He couldn't fault humans for resenting his people. Elves had pretty much exploited them for millennia. Even after a zenith revolt, where human nations across New Gaia gained sovereignty, the economics of magic were too much more hurdle to overcome on their own. After all, one competent wizard could produce more than a human town's entire workforce. Unfair trade agreements ensured that their governments were still reliant on elvish empire for most of their industries, keeping them subservient through indirect means even after earning their freedom. Wrangel knew this was about to change. He witnessed a group of bandits slaughter his private caravan with these uh, weapons. Most of the hired guards fell before they could shield themselves with magic. The spell took too long to cast. Wrangel only survived because he was invisible before the humans fired on him, barely escaping into the night. The Council of Emeroch didn't care. They attributed Wrangel's experience to bad timing and tactical mistakes traveling in a crime-ridden colony after sundown. There wasn't any way a human force could defeat an elven one with proper planning. They wouldn't understand that enchanted arrows, due to the charging time they required, were too slow to shoot more than once before the gun-wielder reloaded. Sure, they had more destructive potential, but that didn't matter when you were outnumbered or already dead. The fact that anyone could pull the trigger without much training meant that, when compared to the years of practice required for magical prowess, this new weapon was simply too efficient to ignore. For every soldier that fell on both sides, the humans would replace their casualties much quicker. It would spell doom for the Elven Empire. Please, Council, said Wrangle, I beseech you. At the very least, we should study this weapon and come up with a way to counter it. A lot of the council, looming above their millennia-old wooden high benches, still chuckled at the notion. Hensel, war master of Emeroch, also tried his best to hide his amusement. He acted as the unofficial leader of the council, a rising star of the empire that had become the youngest commander in imperial history. The plebeians 
loved him and deeply respected his father's legacy, to the point where the emperor himself acted wary of his popularity. Hensel actually respected Rankel due to him being an old family friend. He clearly wanted to remain civil with the old merchant, despite the supposedly outrageous claim. That didn't make the condescension sting any less. Well, I'm sure the experience was troublesome. Don't you think that you're overreacting? It was just a bandit raid. It's precisely my point. My bodyguards were competent soldiers. I only hire the best, and yet they died like rookies to lowly bandits. You have to believe me. Hansel shook his head. I don't doubt your report. I just doubt that the weapon grants such an advantage. This is a dangerous assumption you're making, said Mirim, a portly elf with rosy cheeks. He wore an elegant green robe of sapphires and golden trimming, befitting of his fine sense of status. Due to his delicate position as president of the Merchants Guild, he rarely spoke in these meetings. This was an incredible exception. Everyone in the council took note of his serious tone. Rangel wouldn't bring this to us if he didn't warrant further examination. I've known him for over two centuries, and this is the first time he's ever pleaded directly to our council. Don't you think you are dismissing him too easily? Hensel narrowed his eyes, annoyed. Then why haven't they attacked us yet? They might not understand their advantage, said Rangel. Hensel chortled. If they're clever enough to create these overpowered guns, but not enough to realize their potential, then we have nothing to worry about. The rest of the council joined his laughter. Rangel pulled down his face in frustration. They could be preying on our perceived superiority, gathering their forces as we speak. Isn't that how they gained sovereignty in the first place? I get the merchant like you would think that, but as someone who has studied warfare, I can assure you there is no way a single weapon could produce such an overwhelming advantage. Not when compared to a fireball or a lightning bolt. And that's without taking into account the sacred weapons like my sword, with enchantments that can rival the might of several battalions. The rest of the council, except Mirren, nodded along. Wrangle sighed. I'm sorry, added Hensel. I understand this was a terrifying experience, but we have more important matters to discuss than soothing your anxieties. A merchant as esteemed as you shouldn't have to travel outside our borders, not at your age. Have you considered perhaps, uh, retiring? After the meeting was over, Wrangle went to his home and packed his bags, preparing for what would probably be his last trip. Hensel had a point. Wrangle was a merchant, not a general. As a businessman, he knew the golden rule of all economic trade very well. The market doesn't give a crap about your opinion. If Wrangle was right, then he stood to make a lot of money with the knowledge he had attained. Nobody else in the Empire would enter this market. They were too proud to consider adopting a human invention. At least, not until it was too late. Wrangle knew that he could require the resources needed to make the best ones in the world. Once the conflict arrived at their doorstep, the council will have no choice but to buy them from him. It would make him the richest man in the Empire if he played his cards right. Unfortunately, he couldn't do it alone. A partner was needed, someone who already had experience designing guns. Then Menrango required a human to fulfill his ambition. 
he had to ride southeast towards the imperial colony of Muxor, which was where he was originally raided, then travel west through the marshlands until reaching the contested border, an active military zone between the human nations of Lucretia and Roulettenburg. From there on, his journey would grow more uncertain. Wrangle would have to go from town to town in human disguise, learning more about guns as he ventured into those lands. Hopefully, traveling alone with a little baggage would help avoid any monster or bandits. As he left Emmerich behind in the horizon, he witnessed the eternal blossom tree glistening with rays of sunset in the distance. Its blue crystal leaves, deep emerald trunk, and golden flowers all bathed the city in a multicolored light, towering over every wooden skyscraper they had built. This was his people's divine shard, the crystalline embodiment of their faith in knowledge, nature, and victory. Its divine light shined all day and night for miles, burning up any monsters that experienced its radiance. The Imperial Palace was built into its hollowed-out base. There, the Etheris bloodline fulfilled their royal duty as representatives of the gods in mortal realm. Wrangle took several minutes to admire the view. This might be the last time he saw the ancient capital of his people. It would be a perilous journey into the human lands and require a great portion of his funds, but this wasn't about profits. Not completely, anyway. They could even force the Empire to actually respect the human nations. If they didn't get conquered by them. Wrangle spurred his horse away from the view with a heavy heart. Although painful, it provoked in him an interesting thought that kept him awake for the rest of the night. Legends said Rigel, the god of magic, planted the eternal blossom tree eons ago with the help of Artemisia, goddess of nature, and was crowned with flowers by Morthox, god of victory and king of the divine realm. Mixing the natural world with magic is what many believe gave elves their advantage over the other long-lived races. Following that logic, shouldn't it be possible to enhance guns with magic? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1405 The Curators, written by Alt Cipher Any idea what they want this time? Matt sat at his console in the stark, open room. Metal floors, flat-white light, no windows, and very little in the way of furnishings. Trying to guess the motivations of curators is like trying to hear the sound of one hand clapping over a tree falling in a forest with no one around, Daniela said. She sat in one other chair in the room, occasionally glancing over to Matt's console. But I do wish that they'd open these portals closer to where I am, I had to cross four hundred light-years to get here. They can open these anywhere, right? That's what they say. I've seen them return people to planets and orbitals, drop them off right in front of their house. But when I get summoned, I have to come to this outpost. Well, um, they've always had a soft spot for you, that said. A pale yellow glow started in the middle of the open room. It turned gently pink then became brighter. In moments, a tall, circular portal with pastel shapes drifting across the surface floated millimeters above the floor. Wisps of fog rolled slowly around the edges and fell to the floor. 
You're right, yeah, that's it. Yep, Daniela replied. I'll be back shortly. Should we grab dinner tonight? I haven't had any decent pad thai since the last time I was here. Sure, I'll see you then. Daniela stepped through the portal, as she had so many times before, and found herself on a new planet in a direction she had never determined. It was evening, with a low orange sun hugging the horizon. She was standing on a path through heavy woods and could see a small river reflecting the setting sun through the undergrowth. The air was warm and full with the smell of plants and animals. She followed the path a few dozen steps that she knew well enough to do in her sleep. Sitting on a rock, as always, was Pal. He was a small furry biped this time, barely half a meter tall. Daniela had always asked to see his true form, but he liked the freedom to choose, and so he always would have a new face and body every time he saw her. Good evening, Pal, Daniela said as she came into view. And to you, Daniela, Pal said. He rolled around on his fat bottom to better face her. This is a beautiful place you've selected. Thank you. It has always been one of my favorites. This world never evolved carnivores. It is peaceful, Pal said. He half smiled and the corners of his eyes turned up. What's with the formal summons? Daniela took a seat on a fallen log. Pal sighed and put his hands on his stubby legs. I am afraid that our time is drawing to a close, my dear. What? I just got you. No, Pal said, smiling. Not the time between you and I. I speak of my people, who you call the curators. My species a long time in the sun ends, and we are at the twilight of our era. Daniela searched Pal's face for any signs of a joke or illness, but saw nothing like that. I, uh, I don't know what to say. I, uh, I, I didn't know your time could end. Pal chuckled to himself. Oh, yes, we are long-lived, but we are not immortals. Pal, not in this life, anyway. Do you know how old I am? Daniela shook her head. Two hundred and thirty-eight thousand six hundred nineteen years by your calendar my god pal you're older than my entire civilization maybe my entire species yes pal nodded and looked to the ground i am at that i've watched your species since you were infants you humans started as an assignment and grew into an obsession I have loved your race as I have loved my own children. But even so, my time ends. Daniela felt tears beginning to sting her eyes. Surely, there's something your doctors can do. I mean, you can't die. You're a curator. You can conjure miracles out of nothing. Dying is so... uh, boring. So uh, beneath you. My dear Daniela, dying is the last thing I want. But not for my sake. I would stay here forever and watch you bloom into the species I know in my heart you were destined to be. Do you know what my species' natural lifespan is? I, uh, no, um, you're almost a quarter of a million years old. Uh, I, I, I couldn't guess, Daniela said. 
a little over 150 years. About like an earth tortoise. Paul paused to let Daniela take that in. Long, long ago. When we were not much different from how humans are now. We discovered methods to extend our lives. I was born not long after. My life has been stretched from one end of time to the other. Now, I will be the last of my people to die. That is why I brought you here. To watch you die? Pal laughed softly. <laughs> no, that will not be necessary. As I said, my people's time in the universe draws to a close. We are, uh, moving on, you might say. But I've chosen to stay behind to help you. I've given my life, and gladly, to see humanity through this. Besides, my people do not want an old relic like me pottering around with them through eternity. No, I have earned my rest. And I will seek my task through. I... I don't understand. We are called curators. We selected a name from your language that was close to our role. But gardeners may be more fitting. We have tended to many other species growing in the universe. Out of all of them, none have made it as far as you. Some destroyed themselves through war or fouling their worlds. Some were victims of pure bad luck. It is my eternal joy that you have made it through your childhood. But you're so much more advanced than us. Our childhood isn't close to being over. Not if you're anything to go by. The ending of childhood is painful, Pal said. Painful for the child. Painful. For the parent, there is a line that must be crossed and which can never be uncrossed. We have watched over you as you develop, and you are now ready to take our place as the gardeners of this universe. Daniela was breathless. We... we can't replace you. We still need your help in so many areas. Your wisdom has been... I... I can't... I can't accept this... You're my, 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 my friend. Daniela rushed over to Pal and hugged him tight, burying her face in his tiny, soft shoulder. Yes, Daniela, I am your friend, Pal said, gently patting her head. And I will miss you too. But humans are ready to become the new gardeners. It'll be painful, and you'll make mistakes, just as we did. You will watch with unbridled joy and bottomless sorrow as the races you tend rise and fall. We have stayed far longer than we should have already. Godness must give their charges room to grow. Humanity cannot grow as long as we are here. You would be stunted. Daniela pulled a tear-stained face from Pearl's shoulder. I, I feel like a baby bird being pushed out of the nest. An apt description. You must learn to fly on your own. No one can learn that for you. What, uh, 
What is it did you expect us to do, exactly? My species is the eighth we know of which has taken this role. You will be the ninth. The original curators were the first sapient species to evolve after creation. They looked throughout the cosmos and found themselves alone. They were despondent. An ever-growing universe with only a single spark of intelligence in the void. They found ways to extend their lives and discovered wondrous technologies. Eventually, they stumbled across another intelligent species. Much younger and much simpler, but intelligent nonetheless. The first curators watched over them and tried to uplift them, taught them science and mathematics, gave them rudimentary technology. Rudimentary by the standards of the first creators, aren't you? The Nascent species destroyed themselves in a firestorm of war and anger. It was like giving a child a bomb. The first curators were heartbroken. Thus began the first rule. Younger species must grow on their own. To give them knowledge they have not earned will only lead to suffering. That is why you never shared anything with us, Diana said. Yes, Bell said. Although my species once tried to circumvent the first rule, and it ended nearly as badly as for the first curators. We were arrogant and thought we knew better than our predecessors. It seems every generation of curators must learn the rules for themselves to respect them. What about the Greystone event? When you diverted the gamma ray burst away from Earth. Thus, we come to the second rule. Nature is heartless and uncaring, but we need not be. Stopping a natural phenomenon from exterminating a sapient species is no crime. After all, we and our inventions are part of nature of this universe as well. How many rules are there? Daniel asked. Not many. The third rule is that each species must be given room to grow. The fourth rule is to search for and train your replacements that they might carry on the legacy. The rules for being a curator are simple to state and simple to learn, but onerous to follow. When you return to your station, you'll have a book that has the rules and a few things that we have learned about adhering to them. So, why have the curators at all? Surely, it would be better to let each civilization grow on its own. Isn't that the ultimate expression of the first rule? Pal nodded. We have had similar debates amongst my people long ago. We, this entire universe, has been lucky. If the first curators had been cruel, all intelligent species that followed them would have been killed or enslaved. But the first curators were kind. However, of all the species they watched, only some showed the same propensity for kindness. Others. Other species never advanced beyond tribalism and oppression. One of the tasks of a curator species is to guard against those species, the cowardly and cruel. The vital task of a curator species is to find their own replacement. That you. We guard the universe against evil civilizations gaining control. Well, 
Most civilizations aren't evil. I've even come to believe that individuals are not evil. But individuals and civilizations can certainly hurt other individuals and civilizations. That's what you're preventing. Intentional suffering of growing intelligent species. Good and evil. Well, we're not gods to sit in judgment over other beings. We are curators. This is a lot to take in, Daniela said. You're leaving and we have some pretty big shoes to fill. We felt the same way. We still have records of the seventh curators turning over the responsibility to us. There was a society-wide soul-searching. Were we worthy? Were we up to the task? Should we walk away from this responsibility that we never asked for? The debates raged for centuries. What ended it was a compromise. We would take up the mantle of curatorship in a local galaxy. We would do our best and try not to be overwhelmed. If it became too much, we would walk away from it. As time passed, we grew into our new role, as you will grow into yours. Daniela said, I can't imagine humans ever replacing you. Pell laughed. <laughs> you are the ninth generations of curators to say that. Daniela said, can I, can, I, can I ask you one thing before you, uh, before you leave? There is very little left for me to teach you, my dear, but I will answer what I can. Can I see your real form? You have a different body every time I talk to you, and you've never even told me what your original form looks like. This, Pal said, waving towards his tiny furry body, is the natural form of my people. It is something of a tradition for curators to only have this conversation in the most basic and simple format. We appear on our birth bodies, and we sit on the uninhabited world with no artifice separating us from our successes. It is a form of deep respect for those that we've chosen to follow us. Daniela wiped away a tear hanging from the corner of her eye. Thank you, Pearl. Now, if I may, I do have one question for you. Daniela barked out a laugh before she could stop. <laughs> That'll be a first. Yes, I suppose it might. Daniela, do you think that we were good? That we fulfill our duty of guiding the intelligent species of the universe? Were, uh, were we good parents? Daniela nodded. Yes, pal, you were good. Pal looked down and choked back tears. That is good. <clears throat> I'm glad of that. He looked back up into Daniela's eyes. Pal cleared his throat and began to speak in a formal voice. I speak to you now as curator to curator. Carry on our legacy. Have faith in yourselves as we have faith in you. Protect those weaker than you and help those in need. We turn over the guiding of this universe to humans of planet Earth. The sun is setting on our time, but a new dawn awaits. Farewell, curator humanity. Ninth of a noble and sacred line. End of story. Tales from Our Space 1406. Story number one. GPMG 
written by Doth Hath Depression. Alad, Afon, the two brothers embraced each other, both clinging to what seemed like a ghost that had risen from the grave, a cruel, yet wonderful trick for the heavens to play upon them. Alad, I thought you were dead, but the rumors of Tara Woods keeps destruction false. I'd heard that the humans had flattened it with unnatural force, that there were no survivors found in what was left that wasn't rubble. He spouted, shaking nearly, crying in relief of his sibling's safety. What about you? I had heard the 4th and 5th Pike Battalions were demolished when they came up against the human tanks. I didn't know it was even possible to survive an encounter from what I've heard and seen. You know these monsters by name. This was too much for Affen to handle. Not only had his brother returned from the grave, he was looking better than the last time they had met. Wasn't he a prisoner of war? There were no signs of torture. He seemed well-fed and rather healthy. And now he was speaking in a tongue of their sworn enemy. Now I can see you're confused and quite lightly, but I believe we have catching up to do as family, replied Allard. He seemed strangely at ease in regards to his current status. Aphon needed to know what had happened. And so Allard told him. He talked about huge steel birds that floated through the air, screaming and wailing, turning the ground below to a burning plain of rubble and ash. He talked about arrowhead-shaped creatures, the size of virums, then struck across the sky, spitting lightning, and how they could cripple greater dragons in one blow. He talked about huge metal rods that pointed towards the sky and summoned death upon any in their way, as well as how the humans had treated the captives with respect and kindness, regardless of magical or not. By the time he finished, Aphon was entranced in a spiraling combination of wonder and fear. The humans could punch holes through golems and wipe out entire armies, yet would treat prisoners of war in such a way. Such attitudes were unheard of even in less competitive races, let alone these mockeries of nature. This had to be a lie, some cruel prank cast by the humans. He would soon see past the charade and witness the true nature. His train of thought was broken by an armed human shouting at their group, not threateningly as far as their language went, but so that all were made aware of it. Ah, last meal. We can talk more later. For now we should go and eat. Look at you, the rations must be getting really bad. You look half-starved. Allard spoke so casually of prison food that it almost seemed like he was looking forward to it. What could one look forward to, though? The rations of the non-magical folk were pathetic on good days. How could a person stand what prisoners were meant to eat? Fish. Almost an entire fish, minus for its head, but enough to cover half his plate, and was covered in some kind of crispy shell. Also, serving it on a white, smooth plate's Surely only nobles would be fed in such a way. Next to the fish was a quarter of the plate's portion of golden oblong shapes, maybe some kind of vegetable, and fresh vegetables filling the final quarter. Food fit for a lord or a general for sure, yet given to lowly magicless prisoners. The world surely had gone mad. 
What was most surprising was the second plate given to them. It was some sort of baked spongy mat of brown confectionery, and it smelled divine. Accompanying these was a cup made of strange material filled with some kind of sweet juice. Why would they waste such precious food on them? It didn't matter for how long, as he demolished everything in his path, drowning out the blissful euphoria of a hearty meal. After all were done eating, they were taken back to the huts of the fenced compound and given time to prepare for sleep. Perhaps, if we're lucky tomorrow, we might be able to watch the humans practice during our break, Haddad said with such glee to watch the humans practice so that they could go off and destroy more of his own kind with the strange devices and weapons. Then again, Afon had never seen how human weapons worked. Maybe a quick look wouldn't hurt. The humans were spaced out in a line, facing wooden targets about one quarter of a fey mile away. Each had a rod and was lying on his belly, pointing at the wooden boards. Three cracks could be heard as each rod spouted a little burst of smoke and flame. At that very moment, three of the targets had holes blown through them. This much accuracy, at this range, impossible. Then they repeated, blasting flame at a steady pace. Even the most skilled bowmen could not draw their bows that fast, let alone with such accuracy. Then a larger metal device was placed down, standing on three legs, Two humans positioned themselves next to it, and it roared to life, rocking forwards and backwards, the cracking sound repeating in tenfold, completely demolishing the wooden targets that lay before them. It was horrifying to think that mere foot soldiers were given such weapons to spread terror and destruction to all in their way. It was this that had wiped out the pike formation, cutting them down like wheat to the wrath of a farmer's scythe. And here he stood, watching it, like a child watched a soldier draw his sword and strike at a straw man. What is that, Allard? His words were almost lost to the sound. The humans call it a GPMG. It roughly translates into a mechanical weapon for all purposes. How was he so casual about this? Such weapons allowed soldiers to rival mages. That was it. The world had gone insane. He gave up. There was no escaping his fate now. If the humans wanted the kingdom, they could have it. He carried on with the work the humans had gave him, content in forgetting this madness. End of story. Story number two. The humans don't know. They hope. Written by Cal Bynes. We were wrong about humans, and not by their strength or their intellect. Those were well known. They were planned for for over months, not any flaw in that math. The problem was so different, so alien to us. At first we thought that we had overestimated their intellect. Despite all of our best prediction models, something had to be off about their intelligence. But as the war dragged on, we thought that they were getting dumber anything. That's what it looked like to us. What creature would use their flagship to defend even a hundred others' escape? What sane species would leave legions on a planet as their fleet left? What being would detonate a grenade in their hand before letting their position fall? And how 
didn't work. Either they had to have a hidden rifle of ours in the background helping, or we were wrong. We were, of course, but not about what we thought. Somehow, almost every one of those seemingly insane moves worked. Those ships that were saved at the loss of a flagship came back and hit our fleet even harder. That legion left on the planet held it until we had to bombard them from orbit, destroying every resource left on that planet in the process. That single grenade took out dozens of soldiers, giving the humans defending enough time to push forward, holding their position another day longer. It took me a while to see, combing over every piece of footage off of helmet cameras and drones, painstakingly scraping through audio files. I spent almost a year on the subject before I realized what we didn't account for, why they managed to turn everything around. There wasn't a hidden ally helping them, some flaw in our predictive models because of a misinput or using the wrong variable for their intelligence. The humans didn't know anything. The Admiral of their fleet didn't know if the rest of their ships would get out, whether or not they would be able to fight or even turn the tide of another battle another day. The soldiers left in hell didn't know how long they would be able to hold. They didn't know if they could delay us long enough for rescue, or if they would force us to almost destroy the planet to kill them. The soldier holding the grenade didn't know if it would save his siblings in arms, whether he would take any of us down with him, whether his death would mean anything. Every one of the great feats wasn't planned. They weren't calculated. They didn't even think most of them would work. But they did it anyways. They threw planets, ships, lives, themselves into the fray, not carelessly, but with hope. Some faint hope that their sacrifice would change it all, that it would at least just give their race another chance, another second. They still don't know. Those dead humans will never know. They knew they would never know. That's what separates the humans from us. They don't need calculations. They don't need percentages or anything concrete. They just need hope. And that's enough. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1407. Piloting a can full of whoop-ass, written by Japarthing. My shuttle orbited over the Perskelian stronghold, drifting just out of reach of their orbital cannons. I looked around the drop bay at the other occupants. There were fifty of us in total, all clad in the same ton and a half power armor. Most of us had given our armor a personalized paint job to separate ourselves from the olives. There were a few of them in our platoon, their armor still stock olive drab without any scuffs or marks. I envied them as I recalled my first drop. I adjusted the rate of fire on my mag repeater and sealed my helmet. I'd seen too many veterans get cocky and leave their helmet off till the last minute, only to suffocate to death in the vacuum when the hull got breached. As I donned my helmet, I was greeted by music of choice, Wa CO. We all referred to him as CO, even though everyone knew his name. 
which, for the record, was Richard Cummins, so we obliged him and called him C.O. The music in question was a Martian metal band recounting the first human assault on the Piscalian territory. It was his personal favorite, and against my will, I'd memorized the lightning-fast lyrics and found myself mimicking the lines. One of the rookies in our unit interrupted the music. And you're absolutely certain that Nakota completed their side of the mission, because if they don't take down the point defense, we're all jumping into a clusterfuck. He was interrupted by the pilot. We're beginning drop procedures, everybody. Get your vac suits ready and make sure your vents work, or you'll waste a perfectly good set of armor. Also, you'll be dead. We're two minutes out and counting. I focused on my breathing and followed the frantic beat of the music. The G-forces around me shifted, and if I wasn't magnetically mounted to the floor of the ship, I'd be floating in the air. The engines kicked in for a course correction. G-forces pushed us to the back of the ship. I grabbed a heavy gauge bar above me. The rookie piped in again. Because I'm not dying because some bugger didn't know which end of the rifle to use. The rest of the squad laughed and opened comms. You've never met a Nakota, have you, Jennings? Said our CEO. No, sir. Grew up in Amber Station. Never met an alien other than a Varlance. Then believe me when I say they ain't cannon fodder. Pescalian com traffic is nominal, which means our insect compadres are fine. Just follow orders and shoot what we tell you to, and you'll be fine. And for God's sake, adjust your grenades. I don't want you clearing a room with two kiloton grenade by accident. We all had a chuckle as Jennings fumbled with his eight grenades and dialed them all the way to the lowest setting. I spotted a few other rookings doing the same. Sio wasn't kidding either. The number of squads killed by an idiot rookie going full nuclear with one of the grenades was sparking debate on whether or not to put training wheels on their grenades. 30 seconds and counting. Last one out. Lock the door, said the pilot. Sio switched comms to one way and began linking the squad to the rest of the army and support vessels. My visor updated with the positions of orbiting bombardment ships and their targeted regions. Ammo status of any supporting ships as well as status reports of all nearby squads. Lastly, the visor provided a digital outline of the battlefield that we'd be fighting in. Fortified areas and those with disadvantageous terrain were outlined and enemy force concentrations were marked by red zones on the map with friendly forces as green. Nakota were notorious for disabling their transmitters to stay off the network. Why? Because they are properly paranoid and make things complicated as a result. All right, the CEO said. We and the rest of Six Company are dropping onto the industrial capital of the planet. Our mission is to perch the region of ground troops and seize these factories. Several buildings a few kilometers in size became highlighted. The Beskelians are developing a new atmosphere and vacuum fighter in those factories, so bombardment is out. We need the prototypes intact. All other structures are fair game. All non-combatants are secondary priority. Capture if possible, and if not, fry them. The Nakota are disabling short-range point defense so that we can drop directly on top of the industrial park. After that, our orders are to push to the facilities through their defensive lines. Dropping in five, everybody. Nice knowing you, the pilot said. 
I counted down to my head and held my breath. The floor gave way beneath my feet. We immediately plummeted to the planet below. All around us, other dropships were doing the same, depositing thousands of drop troops to the planet below. CO, being an audiophile he is, switched from the pump-up metal to old Earth classical. I'm not sure what code jockey thought a combat computer needed a display for music, but whoever they were deserve a raise. Verdi Requiem blasted through our speakers as we engaged our reactor thrusters to get into an impact trajectory with the planet. Just over the horizon of the planet, the Verlon striker fleet dueled the Piscalian orbital garrison and Piscalian third fleet. From this distance, I could make out individual Varlan ships jumping into and out of subspace to attack the Perskelians from new angles. With any luck, we could destroy both fleets and wipe out their escorted transports. We'd have complete control of the system at that point. I felt the atmosphere push against my feet while we fell planetside. The further into the atmosphere, the more of me became consumed in fire. Outside my armor, the heat would cook flesh into ash in seconds, while inside, it was standing at a cozy 21 centigrade. We are 20k from the drop zone, 10 more, and we'll be within short-range point defense kill zone. Let's hope the infiltration team did their job, said CEO. I thought you said that they were fine, shouted Jennings. A little late to complain about that now, rookie, replied the CEO. Odds are Piscillian point defense won't kill you. Jennings sighed in relief. Oh, thank God. Exactly. Me personally, I am more worried about the heavily contested industrial heartland that we're about to land in, or my reactor thrust cutting out and plummeting to my death. Odds are at least one of us will die when we hit the ground. I'm not completely green, sir, said Jennings. I know how to do an orbit jump. Our descent slowed as we hit thicker parts of the atmosphere, and still there was no point defense wire. Sir, shouted Sergeant Cook, Pascalian comms just jumped through the roof. They're freaking out down there. I think we lost the element of surprise. Nakota must have been found out. I could hear the CO curse under his breath. Time to do what humans do best, ladies and gentlemen. Pulling alien asses out of fire. Targeting computers are getting in range. I want you pre-aimed and primed before we touch down. Impact in ten. My targeting computer came online and outlined well over a thousand points on the horizon. I warmed up the coils on my rifle. I kicked on the vent thrusters and a cloud of superheated coolant exploded out of my back in a barely controlled burst. My vision darkened as the G-forces hit 15 for a moment. I felt my feet hit the ground hard. Shock servos blew out as I broke the fall and kept my body from doing a convincing impression of an accordion. I didn't have time to adjust my eyes to the dust-swept landscape and relied on target pips on my visor to know where to shoot. Each pull of the trigger sent out a burst of 50 tungsten carbide pennants. I shouldered my rifle and lined up target after target, allowing my computer to mark the next target and adjust for windage and distance. Around me, the platoon ignored cover and focused on advancing towards the targets. How great a strength was our shock. In a three-day engagement, we inflicted a third of the casualties within the first hour. They're stuck in... Call your targets and flush them out, said the CEO. I painted a cluster of squads on the second floor of a factory. I dialed back a grenade to two tons and loaded it into the mag launcher on my shoulder. 
The others did the same. When we launched our grenades, the whole earth shook. Seventeen explosions ranging from half a ton to three tons worth of TNT went off in short succession. Looks like everyone but Jennings made it, said the CO. I looked over to where he'd landed. His legs and half his torso were flattened to the ground. The poor bastard flooded his reactor and lost thrust, said Coke. She bowed her head in respect. We don't have time to greet right now, said the CO. We're bleeding initiative. Everyone solemnly agreed and pressed forward into the industrial park as the battle raged around us. We charged towards the blown-out buildings with over a hundred Piscillian infantry in it. Four of our own kneeled down and sprayed bursts of tungsten at any of them, too stupid to try and get a snapshot off. Meanwhile, Coke and I turned on our vent thrusters and loaded another batch of grenades into our launcher. We jumped six stories to the top of the building and fired our grenades at the roof. I watched hundreds of tons of concrete and ceramic steel crumble on top of the Biscillians pinned down by suppressing fire. Coke was the first to drop down through the debris and begin hunting down survivors. I joined her and combed through the halls while the rest of the squad checked the lower levels. Coke and I found a wounded Biscillian warrior clutching at a Takari blade and slicing away at a leg to free herself. Coke looked at me and shrugged. She pulled out a sidearm and pointed it at the Biscillian warrior. With one pull of the trigger, a layer of right foam coated her face and she fell unconscious. I pulled out my knife and chopped through her leg. Once free, I doused the wound in biofoam. We walked away and declared the level clear. I tagged the Biscillian warrior for recovery. Swearing the wounded made capturing prisoners much easier. Get a reputation for not taking prisoners and they'll fight the last. Get a reputation for sparing them and break their morale quickly enough they give up. Four grenades, one thousand rounds, and twelve buildings later, we'd breached the Piscillian lines of defense and fell upon the facility alongside two other squads of our platoon. In total, twenty-eight of us came down in a titanic building. We grouped up into fire teams of two and breached the building. We were right behind the detonation, relying on our armor to absorb the shock. On the other side, I spotted four dead and a hallway scattered with cover. Over a dozen Piscillian trained their rifles on me. I felt my armor disintegrate in thin layers to absorb the laser fire. I switched my rifle to chainsaw grip and sprayed down their positions. Piscillian torsos were cleaved from their legs in one sweep of my weapon. Coke and I switched to magnesium rounds, and I'd set most of the targets on her side on fire. I set my grenade to fission before moving forward. Coke and I pushed through the dilapidated walls to the main hangar. Our section of the hangar was deathly quiet. Biscillian bodies lay on the ground with subtle burn marks in their backs and heads. We looked around trying to find the source of the kills. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a shimmer that my suit had ignored. I set my rifle to it and held fire until I could identify it. The shimmer stopped and examined me. A moment later, the shimmer was gone, and in its place, a four-armed figure dropped from the wall had approached us. Many thanks for the assistance, it said. Looking over the figure, it was obvious that it was a Nakota. Its armor was similar to ours, sans the heavy two-centimeter plating. 
In its place was a rough metallic mesh, which I assumed was camo mesh the Nakota were infamous for using. It carried an X-ray rifle with two additional smaller X-ray beams on its shoulders. Its lower hands had access to two fearsome-looking nanoblades as well. We were a diversion, weren't we? I asked. Very astute. The most effective one at that. Biscadians are organized, but are predictable. As soon as you made groundfall, their warriors went exactly where they needed to be, and where we wanted them to be. I hope that you are not offended. I shrugged. Just let us know ahead of time next time, so we don't try too hard. And that's why we didn't. I looked next to the Nakota at the fighter draped in graphene tops. From under the form-fitting fabric, it was clear to see from my uneducated eye that it looked badass. What? I'm a grunt, not an engineer. Was it worth it? I asked, motioning at the fighter. We hope so. My comm opened up. It was the CO. Fleming, Coke, we got problems. The Biscalian broke through the blockade. The entire first army of Orbis is going planetside. Group up. We have to hold this place whether we want to or not. Coke, go ahead. I'll catch up. I turned my attention to the Nakota. Can we count on your assistance? The Nakota nodded. In this moment, our fates hinge on the same result. So, yes. End of story. Tales from Our Space 1408. Story number one. The Harriers, written by Doth Hath Depression. It was only a few days since the Vulcan had ravaged his fortress, and the life in the human encampment turned out to be quite enjoyable. As unusual as they were. Wake up when the humans commanded it, put on the prisoner's clothes that they supplied, which had to be modified to account for the face wings. Eat the strange yet palatable food they give you. Toasted bread with pulp fruit and a bowl of what seemed like mashed oats and milk. Whatever it was, it was savory sweet and filling. And that's all that mattered. Then move into the camp under the watchful eye of the god and shun boxes of pointed metal cylinders and containers of strange liquid. Oh, and watch the human's creations in action. Whenever the fae were given time to rest, a lot gathered around where the human's flying machines would rise into the air and soar into the distance with a howl that vibrated through their chests. They'd seen the Vulcan being prepared for war, with humans disappear into its belly, followed by egg-shaped metal balls that hung from the guts of the beast. Were these what caused so much destruction? He didn't know enough uh, English to ask. There were also smaller, pointier machines. These, uh, he guessed, filled their equivalent of the role of the Virum. They were sleek. They didn't make such a terrifying noise as the Vulcan, yet were still just as imposing. Man, in order to fly, had to run across the field in the same fashion. All except one. This one called the Harrier could rise into the air like a bird, yet its wings didn't flap. Instead, it pushed hot air into the ground beneath it. It hovered like a fly, before shooting forward like an arrow. Of course, there were other machines that acted like this, ones that spanned blades around their heads and looked strangely similar to insects. But the Harrier seemed special, so we regarded it fondly. 
The day followed through with two more meals and plenty of work. What the humans march in unison, arms swinging, rods resting on the shoulders. A terrifying sight to anyone who knew what power they possessed. Then it was back into the hut to sleep and then repeat everything the next day. Except he wasn't woken by the knocking of the door and the shout of a human. He was woken by many shouts and the roar of a dragon. This was why the generals hadn't ordered any dragons into battle. They were stockpiling them for an attack on the humans. There must have been over 180 virums and maybe 15 king dragons, as well as numerous lesser species. Below the humans were all rushing into action, ground-mounted rods erupting in puffs of smoke and others spitting fire at rapid pace. As the prisoners rushed out to hut seeking shelter, they watched as the human flying machines roared to life, each one piling onto the stone strip, except for the Harriers. As soon as the riders climbed on and into them, they crawled to an adjacent space and rose into the air, darting forwards into the legions of dragons. And they danced in the air. As they met in the sky, they bobbed and weaved like birds of prey, erupting lightning from their fronts that struck the virums down, grumbling as if they were made of parchment. For the king dragons, however, it seemed like even the humans were unable to penetrate their hide. That thought was quickly dispelled, however. Then a white plume of cloud appeared to spring from the harrier, and an object smashed straight into the side of the king dragon, erupting in a brilliant flame and ending its life swiftly. Throughout this, the Fae started to have conflicting thoughts and feelings. Do they pray for the humans? They had treated them with respect and honor, even though they were enemies. But shouldn't they have their mind set on the victory of the Fae? This was their kingdom. The humans were invaders. It was too much to think about. So they simply settled down and watched. The battle raged on, the legions of Fae held back by the crushing power of the human war machines, with crawling steel beasts eradicating all that were on the opposing end of their rods, and the bug-like ones spreading fire and lightning across the rows of shields and spears, magic crackling in the distance, merely bouncing of the steel bodies. It was hopeless. Soon all the human flying machines were in the air and the dragons started to fall in triplicate, completely eradicating any resistance. Only to turn upon the armies of the Fae, there was no winning this battle. He had made up his mind. There is no point trying to oppose such a devastating force if it's already won. The humans were his new masters now, and there was no going back. End of story. Story number two, Irresistible, written by Deomek. Until the human representative set foot on the capital, the whole galaxy was clueless. It made sense, in hindsight. Human technology was rather primitive compared to the galactic standard. Their systems weren't compatible with the others and wouldn't be for several years. And since the humans, obviously didn't speak galactic norm, every piece of correspondence had to be translated. For convenience sake, the Galactic Council and Earth government stuck to text-based communication. In the meantime, 
The humans worked hard on updating their systems, and the galactic tech started integrating human language into the intergalactic neural net, which allowed for instantaneous communications. Six years after initial contact for the humans, they were invited to the capital to begin the application process for new species. It did not go as expected. Ambassador, diplomat, whatever her title was, Maria Abana waited patiently for her escort. Welcome, said a robotic, clearly artificial voice. A slug-looking alien slithered towards her. Maria's personal AI helpfully informed her that the slug was known as Representative 398470. The species, who were known as the 99,999, used numbers instead of true names. They were also blind, deaf, and mute. Among their own, they communicated mainly through telepathy. Thank you, Representative, she replied in galactic norm. Her relative fluency in the lingua franca of the galaxy was another reason that the government had selected her to represent humanity. Yes, yes, follow me. 3984 slid away, and Maria followed. As they passed others in the hall, Maria made sure to smile, nod, and say hello. It wouldn't hurt to be polite. For some reason, that seemed to be, putting it simply, freak the other aliens out. Her greetings caused a tentacle squid to drop his tablet, a green humanoid to run into a wall, and a bunny dog hybrid to jump five feet into the air. Googs! She hissed at her AI. Am I breaching any protocols or traditions? None that I know of, whispered the AI in her ear. Your standard greeting should be inoffensive to a majority of species. Maria frowned but decided to ignore it. They had arrived in the main hall and she had bigger things to worry about. She smiled and murmured a thank you to the intimidating guards who opened the door for her. The hulking crab giants immediately slumped to the ground. She blinked in confusion, but before she could do anything, the doors automatically closed behind her. To the platform, reminded the AI. Representative 3984 had finished the introductions, and now it was her turn to speak for humanity. Members from a thousand alien species watched and waited as she climbed up the long stairs. Maria plastered a polite grin as she stood in front of the ruling chamber for the galactic government. Don't screw this up, she thought. Greetings, representatives. I stand before you to convey the thanks of... The reaction was instantaneous. Some screech, some flew into the air, and countless others fainted. The SDO's eyes... I literally fell out of the eye socket. Only a few species were unaffected. Uh... Humanity? Maria trailed off as the pandemonium before her. She'd given plenty of speeches before, but never had gotten... That reaction. What do I do? Googs was silent for a few seconds. I do not know the answer. Thankfully for Maria, their reaction was technically not her fault. It turned out that humans had irresistible voices when compared to the rest of alien species. Immediately, the demand for human voice recordings and music skyrocketed exponentially. From then on, other aliens had to communicate with humans through mediums like the intranet or hire deaf middlemen to do it for them. Humans could involuntarily hypnotize many aliens with just their voice. 
It made negotiations for non-humans troublesome, to say the least. Pirated recordings of humans immediately became part of the black market, and the governments of the more sensitive species labeled them as Class 7 drugs. Unsurprisingly, Morgan Freeman was classified as a weapon of mass destruction. His voice started several religions and became the preferred method of unliving amongst many species. Dying from pure orgasmic happiness was certainly much better than the alternatives. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1409. Story double one. Interesting. Written by Aranya P. Ah, hello there, dearest readers. I see that you've clicked on the link to me. Perhaps wondering what this story will be about. Why, it's named the way it was. Well, I won't keep you waiting for long then. See, quite some time ago, that you'd say it was a long time, I didn't know of Earth at all, of its interesting quirks and people. And the most interesting thing I'd ever done was just floating along through the mostly empty, nearly infinite vastness of space. Occasionally poking at the stars and making them explode. Oh, it was a joy for me. But that does get boring quickly. Fortunately for my non-existent sanity, I found something that is quite uh, interesting, you see. It was a space empire. Hellbent on conquering as many floating rocks as they possibly could for one reason or another. I think they were called the Anxiety, or something of that manner. It doesn't really matter, though. So I found myself a space empire, shooting itself across the universe, looking for more rocks to plant their flags in, or taking it from other species. And I have to say, the destruction and pain that they've brought, the pure chaos that it brings... Absolutely wonderful. Oh, I shiver just at the thought of it. And they kept going on and on about it, too. Sometimes they'd fail to find anything of interest for a while. Or I did first, so I'd just poke a ship or two of theirs during a warp travel to have it appear where I wanted them to be and watch the fun unfold. It was usually worth a chuckle or two as they land their ships and fight the natives. But things were getting old rather quickly. Old, repetitive, boring. Watching the Angzai slaughtering others was only amusing the first couple thousand times. It was really starting to become bored of that. My mind was again wondering if I could get them to fight each other. That would be quite interesting, wouldn't you think? Well... Before I could do anything about it, I found your world. Earth, it was uh, mediocre, to be honest. Uh, no offense, of course. And then I found your people, the humans. And you, you were, were the most boring-looking things that I'd ever laid my eyes on. Surely, you couldn't possibly have anything interesting for me. But I am not one to waste. So I poked a couple of Anzai ships during warp over the planet's orbit... Perhaps I'll get a chuckle under the destruction of your species, I thought. The Angzai, in their boring, repetitive, unexpected ways, landed the ship upon seeing this new world. They saw its natives and, like me at first, thought you weak. 
They'd march out and burn every building in their way, putting up their flags and generally conquering things all around. It had yet to get interesting, and even as I watched, I couldn't help but feel... bored. You see, a thing gets its head chopped off by a power axe a hundred thousand times. You saw it all. On the third day, I was about to leave. Nothing interesting seemed to be coming out of this world until the Langzai camp was awoken by the strange bellowing sound. They came out to see what it was and was met with the human army. This caught me right before I left, and I chose to at least watch your futile attempts in protecting your world. It was usually the most fun part, after all. The Anzai formed their companies, they shouted their war cries and readied their power armors. Then their shouts of excitement died in their throats when the very sky turned red. Weapons that streaked across the blue sky in a trail of fire rained down upon their column with horrifying results. I could taste the delicious chaos wafting from their ranks as confusion broke out. Their ears were ringing. Their cries of war were replaced by mewlings of a wounded and cries of pain. Then the second barrage came. The Anxi's column, thought indestructible, was devastated. Oh, they tried to gather themselves together admirably, but it was no use, because you see, moments after the third barrage had crushed them into the ground, the human war machine crashed into them. The air was filled with that delicious sound of metal crunching against flesh and bone, with the pained, panicked cries of the invaders who thought themselves indomitable, their worlds crushed beyond recognition. And the best of all, the sweet, sweet, delicious chaos that it all causes. More intense than any other that I've ever experienced. Just when I thought it was all over, the human infantry's charge. They charged right into the staggering invaders. These weak-looking, puny-looking humans crashing into beings larger than them, more naturally evolved for combat than them, with nothing but weapons and armor that they'd made for themselves. I knew I was wrong about humanity then as the last whimper of the dying Angzi was cut short, and I knew I had found my new favorite. The next thing I needed to do was make a friend out of the leader, of course. So I went to the leader of these amazing warriors, and after they tried and failed to kill me, we sat down and had a chat over some tea. I must say, my first human friend was wonderfully interesting man, fascinating beyond belief, and with a very curious sense of humor. Such an interesting man he was, that Julius Caesar. End of story. Story number two. System of the Primates, written by IndieKid1011. Seval winced as consciousness returned to him. The memory of the pirate attack caused him to jolt up, only he couldn't tell what ship he was on. But he knew somehow that it wasn't the pirate's ship. He came up with his hands on knees and took a quick scan of the surrounding area. It appeared to be a cargo hold or a scavenger bay. 
He hoped it was the former, as scavengers always expected payment for rescuing anyone. When a bulkhead opened, he held his reservations about any species that it could be, but was shocked to see that it was not one but three races that he hadn't seen before. The first to come through was the shortest of the three, being almost waist-height on the second alien. Unlike the others, based on its slender appearance, the third one was taller than the slender one, but it was reasonably close. The significant difference was that the facial features were proportioned vastly different. The slender one seemed to admonish the other two upon seeing me. The language wasn't one I recognized, but the translator in my idea did. He's injured, and you didn't take him to the medbay. He could be dangerous, the short one answered. You can disarm him. The beds contain restraints, and I'd be surprised if he'd put much of a fight against the four on-site guards in the medbay. The slender one replied curtly. The short one grumbled before being cut off by the large one. He hasn't attacked us yet, so I don't think he's too aggressive. Sides, Ben is watching him. The sudden buzz of the error in his ear caused him to reach to his ear. Before looking at the three aliens, the slender one moved with speed that Sevar hadn't ever seen in a species before. Apologies for my fellow's rough treatment of you. They are a little overprotective of the occupants of the ship, it said as it reached Sevar's side and helped him to his feet. Uh, it's all right. I, I, I know this must be rude, but uh, what species are you all? I've never seen your kinds before, and you all look different, speaking the same language. The slender one bared its teeth before quickly covering its face. It's all right, uh, and apologies of my own. My kind refer to ourselves as uh, human. I'm called William, and we bear our teeth to express positive emotions. We call it smiling. I'm aware most others dislike that expression, but it is ingrained with us genetically. This one here, the human William, gestured towards the shortest, who nodded in kind before speaking. My kind calls itself the Kantai, and I am referred to as Shrook. Their kind, let us name ourselves, they used to call us chimpanzees. The Kantai Shrunk pointed at William before pointing to the last one, who spoke as if on cue. My kind uses the human word for what we were before we came sapient. We... Our gorillas. I am Yonto. I was struck with awe. One species uplifted two others and worked with them in tandem. You must be very advanced to uplift two species from their cradle worlds. I was interrupted by a whooping of noise from behind where I noticed a false species similar to the Kantai, but with a discoid face and orange hair. More than you do, and you have one major misunderstanding, the orange one said. Firstly, my kind is known as the Arba, once called orangutans, and we all far hail from the same homeworld. So we all refer to ourselves as Terrans, because of this far easier, with less confusion. One homeworld, with multiple sentient species... How's that possible? I began to suspect that I was in fact hallucinating while dying aboard either my vessel or the pirate vessel. Well, uh, the answer is simple, uh, to us at least, the Orbis said, biting into a fruit that it had on its person. Terra is a planet of the apes. End of story. 
Tales from Outer Space, 1410. Story number one. There's no guardian like your own mind, written by a Skandalia. No species evolves without strong survival instincts. Only in a deeper state of despair or depression can a creature leap into danger. The brain short-circuits any attempt to harm the body. It's not a subroutine. It's built into the hardware. So when we put our bodies in suspended animation, we send them off to the stars. We thought, what better guardian for them than our own minds? We could never bring ourselves to trust the miracle of suspended animation for a long journey to another star until we discovered how to upload our minds into the ship itself to watch over our own safe passage. It was hailed as a brilliant innovation. Something about the idea made it disgusting, palatable. It sanitized the disconcerting thought of a body in stasis for a century, only to be awakened at the end of a long journey to begin a new life. Rather, our minds could be busy toiling away, ready to join a body fully aware of the journey it had been on and ready to get to work. In transit, each mind could be given a job analyzing incoming sensor data, balancing engine temperatures, planning and modeling different community layouts on an increasingly visible colony planet. But other mind could be more invested in the safe arrival of the bodies than their own. What mind could do a better job of planning a future habitat than one whose body will occupy it. 200 years is a long journey, and we as a species waited with bated breath to hear news of the first colony. Forty years after their scheduled arrival, the first signal was due to reach Earth. But nothing came. The best guardians can't protect us from the impossible. Surely something went awry on the journey. By now, we had sent several dozen ships out into the ever-expanding front of our glorious new territory. Surely, one would succeed. But no word came. The silence of the universe was deafening before we took to the stars. But now that we had fired a shot out over the waters of the vast expanse, the lack of echo shook us to the core. The great filter, once a metaphor for the lack of noise in the universe, was now a physical reality. Nothing seemed to survive past the limits of our solar system. Even our mechanical minds stayed silent. Not only were they not broadcasting their success, they never accounted for the apparent failure. All was dark. We needed the hope of the expanse to keep our fragile hearts striving for more. Improvement ground to a halt. Slowly, generation by generation, population plateaued and innovation spun down. For centuries, we sulked, alone and isolated tethered to a lively ball of hydrogen that would one day fade to dust. We were unquestioned masters of every planet in the solar system and exactly one star in a vast universe. Some prayed that whatever ill fate our travels met would finish off the rest of us. But they heard only silence. Then one day, the silence was broken. A coordinate burst of radio noise from 10,000 stars nearly every direction at once shouted at us. The message was played in every language of Earth, some long forgotten, some changed beyond recognition, but many were unmistakably consistent. It's 
safe now. And just as heard, translated, and began to understand the message, they arrived, bursting into orbit above every planet, arriving with a shower of light, where massive starships, unmistakably human, unmistakably alien, with no cockpits or control, but hulls and berths meant for humans. The intrepid souls who had not lost their spark for adventure, who never had the hope of seeing beyond the Oort Cloud fully extinguished, climbed aboard. There was no one to greet them, but a banquet was provided on every table. No stasis pods were found on the ships, just comfortable chairs and exquisite food. When the ship's berths were full, they blinked out of existence with a flash of light, and another appeared to replace it. Immediately, the messages began streaming in, photos and videos of massive orbital rings, Dyson spheres and space stations, each populated with cities, buildings, farms and factories, brand new and waiting for residents. Other ships landed on garden planets, seeded with plants and animals from Earth, but also massive, sparkling cities devoid of residents. Every ship took the passengers of a thousand new stars with different colony uniquely built and designed, but equal to all others in luxury. The bodies of the voyagers were never found there. It was thought that they had died in transit, and that the minds, untethered from their humanity and unable to return to bodies, decided to complete their mission for the species at large. Theories abounded. Perhaps they still are out there, making the journey to the next galaxy. Perhaps the minds melded over time, forming a superconscious, benevolent, and unbeholden to humans and uninterested in communicating with us. We questions, but answers were not forthcoming from our silent benefactors. We are also extraordinarily good at becoming accustomed to new ways of things, and so, despite our doubts, we spread quickly through the unpopulated but accommodating galaxy, we were right about being alone as a species, but wrong about being alone on Earth. All this time, our mother had decided to interpret their mandate more broadly than we realized, building safe worlds across space for our whole species. We were overjoyed. We were concerned. But mostly, we were going about our business in our new, glorious homes. Then a few months into the expansion... The first derelict ship was found floating in the expanse. It collided with the passenger ship and killed everyone aboard. The investigation found an alien ship clearly destroyed by weapons, floating in a major thoroughfare between densely populated human worlds. Nuclear decay aging showed that it must have been destroyed a millennium ago, while our colonies were under construction. This prompted more investigation. Aside from more wreckage, excavation on garden worlds revealed scars of nuclear blasts. The fallout long ago scrubbed from the atmosphere. Bones were found next, alien, but undeniably organic, with appendages gripping the hilts of weapons of all levels of sophistication, from blades to guns, depending on the planet. More months passed as humanity claimed more and more star systems, and we began to get a sense of our new empire. As we explored our new colonies, we discovered that each had a section that no one had clearance to access. Deep below layers of steel, fields of plasma, and robotic sentries were heavy steel doors. 
We could walk right up to the doors of these vaults, but we were permitted no further. Every vault door was labeled in a different language, but the same message in bold, white letters. Safe. With our benefactors silent, the secrets that we could not answer on our pre-built worlds, we began exploring the stars on our own. A decade in, and our pre-constructed colonies spanned the length and the breadth of the galaxy. But there were alcoves of unclaimed stars on the margins, between the arms, or on the fringes, where stars are too far apart to justify transit, or where stars seem too unstable to justify a new colony. That's where we found the answers. And finally, the survivors. End of story. Story number two. Genie, written by a glass of whiskey. He was bored, a beautiful ship outputting the power of his son, and he was bored. Computer, is there anything on that I haven't seen one million times already? There is. Sometimes fires go out. You only have seen that one 104,421 times. Being a mortal had its perks, but relief from boredom wasn't one of them. However, I have picked up a signal from a primitive species. Oh, sweet heavens, finally! Some fun. Yes, of course. His favorite pastime, dressing up as a primitive species mythological creatures and granting them wishes that they would then go horribly wrong, was part of the fun. It was, of course, childish, quite rude, and most likely broke a bunch of intergalactic laws. More importantly, however, it wasn't boring. So, what did they call themselves? Some intel before the show was always good. Although, with holograms, the AI could create it, it didn't matter that much. Humans, it seems, they have a mythological creature called Genie that would fit the circumstances. Even better. Alright, I'm ready. Beam one aboard. Ah, a chance to mess with some primitive species. Finally. He wondered what the first wish would be. Hopefully world peace. That one was always fun. Showtime! Oh, feeble human before you, I, an all-powerful genie, stand. You will be given three wishes, with three rules. No wishing for death, no falling in love, and no bringing anyone back from the dead. What is it that you desire? The rules were mostly there to guide primitives away from the boring, predictable stuff. Kill my neighbor, let me bang their wife, and bring back my beloved pet, Rufius. Ugh, dribble. The human looked around a bit, confused. Holograms would make sure whatever he saw was fitting for the circumstance. Then, it looked as if he had decided on something. Oh, what would it be? I wish my socks were tongues. Right, now how can I spin this to, um, uh, go wrong? Um, are you serious? Look, this is clearly not real and I've always wondered, so hurry up now. This wasn't supposed to happen. Did I say three rules? Sorry, I meant four. No wishing for uh, that. He hadn't expected to wish quite so strange. All-powerful, my Rhea. Come on! It's a part of the rules I just made up. Now get on with the wishing. Fine. I wish for infinite wishes. Now, he was just annoying him for no reason. Whatever. Just get on with it. Really? Well, all right then. I want one of those angry worms. His computer started feeding him some information. Do you mean snakes? 
Let's see, quite with a very few painful poison. Likes to hide. Thick bringing that on board the ship. No. Bear with chainsaw hands. Was the human just messing with him? How do you feel about world peace? Come on now, the primitives always love that one. Psst, like that can happen. Clearly, the human mind couldn't stretch quite that far. About a bit smaller than... Peace in the Middle East? Ha, <laughs> that's even more unlikely. How can it be more... What, what? No, fuck this. Computer, beam him back. Wait, how about... And then he was gone. Good riddance to him. Computer, start playing. Sometimes fire goes out. He was dull. Dull. Unbearably dull. But after his human experience, he felt that his life needed a little more boredom. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1411. Story number one. Creatures of the Void, written by Paragon Nostus. It came from the Vale of Reason, the borders of Ethereum. It came from the Void. The galaxy trembled as nothing could possibly come from the empty abyss. It came from the space between galaxies, the inhospitable Void, where even light does not deign its existence there. A jet black monolith pierced through the souls of both me and my crew. It was a gargantuan slab of despair and hopelessness. Every inch of my fur stood on end, my body readying me for a gory confrontation that I wouldn't hope to quell against an adversary emanating death itself. I could just barely contain my fear. I, a Vatican member of the fearless warborn species, was quivering. I was almost relieved of my bowels at the sight of the gargantuan abomination. I, however, could not say the same of the younger ensigns, petrified in the smell of fear and subsequent shame. My communications officer fainted. My helmsman vomited over his console, himself, and three nearby officers. My second-in-command promptly relieved herself as a look of horror washed over her, slumped in her command seat in a posture of both astonishment and fear. Nearly asphyxiating herself, fretting the possibility of a slight movement being noticed by the behemoth before us. Its weapons were intimidatingly deadly, as if laying your eyes upon its arsenal would result in instantaneous, agonizing death. This is no doubt a warship of astonishing size, nearly 200 times larger than our own attack cruiser, speeding from beyond the inky space thought to be dead. Each and every inch of the smooth ebony reflective hull was crammed with armament, but yet elegantly designed for maximum terror. The elegance wasn't that of wealth, status, or aesthetic. It was the elegance of death. It instilled a primal fear, one that had never been unperturbed. Every fiber of my being was turning me to flee. I started to get my words out of my snout. Feigning confidence, I relented. Sh sh shields have to maximum ready the plasma armaments. Sets scanned for life size. Only half of the bridge crew responded to my orders. The remaining members continued to be fear-stricken quivering as their flight instinct took over their rational minds. Captain, I am unable to pierce the objects out of hell. A meek-sounding ensign relays with trembling voice. My second then command squeaks, Any power signatures? She was immediately assured by Lieutenant Quagar, 
No power signatures of any kind, madame. It's the stocky reptilian repressing all emotion. Seeing the state of my second in utter terror was no surprise of mine. She had evolved from a smaller marsupial species, after all. In fact, one of the reasons I requested Officer Mustali was because of her ability to turn the act of fleeing into an art form. I have no doubt that if I were captured or incapacitated, she would ensure the survival of my ship and her crew. Her officer's attire had unfortunately been sullied when she reacted in terror. I dismissed Mustali from duty so that she could head back to her quarters and switch uniforms and freshen up. Upon hearing my relieving her, she skidded over to the personal lift, dragging her tail behind her. With a look of embarrassment, she squealed, Yes, sir. I, however, now needed to assure the bridge crew that I had control of the situation, to reduce the fear in the room and the crew's confidence. Do we have any speed or trajectory on the monolith? I barked. Yes, sir. At current trajectory in six months, it will skim the surface of Dan Tass 4. Looking over at the lieutenant, I say, stout. Yeah, we keep on a pursuit, course. He replies, yes, sir. So long as it does not increase speed, we should be able to keep up at 70% thrust capacity. The mission couldn't have gotten any worse. Well, I say that, but at least whatever it was hadn't reduced our ship to do a brief field in the backwater nebula. It's clear that whatever it is has not been moving under its own power, leading me to believe that it could be a derelict station or structure, however it appears undamaged. It flashed periodically with yellow beacons of unknown intent. However long it's been hurtling through starless space, it wasn't lost anymore. After bringing myself out of a deep thought, I commanded, Keep a parallel pursuit, course, just 1,500 units off the monolith's aft side. No one is to attempt to change course until I deem it so. After these orders, I could see the crew were but more sure of themselves, save the few who were still visibly shuddering. Before leaving, I stated, Jack Tarp, you have the con, as my science officer salutes me before I take my leave. The walk down to the conference alcove was less than pleasant. I'm sure the progenitor of the gas lock will not be pleased to hear that the mysterious object will be making an orbital scene in an inhabited system. Dantas 4 was densely populated colony. If this thing so much as gets in range of an inhabited system, the progenitor council will flay me alive. The mere existence of such a terrible object coming from starless space would throw the galaxy in terror. Entire civilizations would crumble at the thought that life could exist beyond our galaxy, and the wars that would be fought for the opportunity to study this gargantuan piece of technology would cripple our galactic society. The fact that my ship is even here at all to assess the threat posed by this object is a state secret, so allowing said secrets to be aired above a Class II colony would mean the death of my career and possibly myself as well. As I walked up into the conference station, I ran the secure omni-encrypted line to the progenitor of Gaslock. After a few moments of waiting, the progenitor was before me, in his holographic greatness. He stood at a firm seven feet tall as his tentacles lifted his bulbous clear head straight up, his many eyes twisting and twirling inside the see-through cranial case. 
He bubbled in his mother tongue for some time before the translators kicked in. Speak, guileless one. Hey, uh, Ron, watch out for that small toy size ship. I swear, every time we go in one of your exotic fishing spots, you scare the piss out of some poor emerging species. Well, uh, what do you want me to do about it? It's not like I can put the light-caliber defense turrets anywhere else. We are already coasting without power. I've done all that I can. I don't know. Just put your hazards on. Let them go around us. End of story. Story number two. The Millennial Deal, written by Zephy Landantis. My, have you summoned me? The snarl was glattural, and the tone carried enough annoyance in it to be physically tangible as the two entities stood in opposing silence in the room, one encased by a ritual outline on the floor and the other holding an ancient tomb of rites. The demon and the human locked eyes in silence as the mist of the ritual slowly dissipated, slowly clearing the library. The human broke the silence after the room had cleared. We had a deal. Yes, we did. The demon interrupted him. But you are pushing the limits, human. The two didn't move from their spots, one due to restrictions of the circle. After another bout of silence, the demon growled threateningly. It did not involve this. But it did. The human smiled as he pulled out the contract. I trade the ownership of my immortal soul to you to be collected upon termination of mortal existence. In return, I can call upon your services twice per week until the trade is concluded and the contract is fulfilled. Don't quote the deal to me, mortal! The demon snarled as he put the tome down on the table next to it and took a menacing step towards the human. You are going to pay for this, and I am the laughing stock of the circle. The man in the summoning circle didn't flinch. He knew that the symbols on the floor prevented all passage. He just smiled and shot a glance at his wristwatch. It's two minutes till midnight, Exabar, and I still have one service to ask this week. Exabar, supreme evil counsel to Beelzebub himself, took a step back and sighed, Ask! I'll need you to slap the cheeks of Beelzebub. The demon froze. I cannot hit my boss in the face. That would end my life, and with it, how deal? It pleaded. The other cheeks. I hear he's a, a kinky fella. The human smiled softly as Exabar realized what the likely outcome would be. You're an asshole, it muttered. And soon, you'll be the owner of two. The human smile widened. Are we done here? Exabar slumped, its shoulders in defeat as it picked up the tome from the table. Yes, we are. Good. I'll see you tomorrow for the weekly cleaning. Bring the maid uniform. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1412 Story number one. The Immortals, written by Ogosh. The Immortals of Kondrai, the Festival of the Dead. Robert Applegate, National Geographic, August 7th, 2391. As a part of the Nat Geo faraway team stationed in the fourth arm, my job is to normally accompany the Unic.Kepler on its scouting mission through the sector, learning about the marines and photographing the sites which we find along the way. 
During this trip, however, I found that the more interesting parts of our excursions often take place on shore leave. One of such excursions, the captain had dismissed our ship for three days on the planet of Kondry, a temperate planet roughly the size of Mars, second from the star and inhabited by the Lenma. We landed in the human military base of Fort Ken, and were instructed that day trips into the nearby city were possible as long as we did not disturb the locals. I did not know that the captain meant at first, assuming that he would just want us to keep our noses clean. But after my first trip out, it became increasingly apparent that there was a deeper wisdom in his words. We had, quite serendipitously, arrived in Condry during the midwinter festival which they call Cat Vendesatora. Translating loosely as Beast of the Yonder Dead, the closest approximation I can make in human cultures is Dia de la Mortis of Mexico. Citizens observed memorial services where the names of recently deceased families and friends on bright multicolored cloths attached to their clothing feast and tell stories. When I arrived in the city, I was encouraged by my guide to head straight to the city hall, where the patriarch of the town's clan was set to give a speech, marking the official beginning of the festival. The speech itself is fairly standard fare for anyone who has heard a politician speak, but what I found most interesting is that at the end of the speech was a nearly half an hour long list of names, spoken aloud, and seemingly from memory by the patriarch. Quick searches through my database of a few of these names revealed that many of them were heroes in some way. War heroes, some centuries old, artists, politicians, philosophers, spiritual leaders, etc. But what was most surprising to me is that nearing the end of the list, among the barrage of Lenman names, the patriarch spoke the human name, Janie Wessel. I was stunned. In the middle of this crowd of Lemma, the only human for a kilometer in any direction, the leader of these people had spoken the name of one of my own. As I looked around, trying to pull myself back to present, I saw that several Lemma around me were staring, most with a look of curiosity, others with looks of reserved pride. Following the speech, the crowd dissipated to return to their festivities, while I tried desperately to drudge through the crowd to the podium, where the patriarch was speaking to the side with his men. I arrived too late to speak with him, but I did manage to flag down one of his assistants. After explaining my situation and the effect that Dame Janie Wessel had on me, I was able to schedule a brief interview with the patriarch two days later. In the time leading up to my interview, I headed to the human embassy to learn more about Miss Wessel. The embassy itself was not hard to find. Among the round and soft corners of Lemma buildings, the human embassy was a two-story Victorian estate in the downtown core. Janie Mary Wessel, I would learn, was the first human ambassador to the Lenma some sixty years ago. On a first meeting with the previous patriarch, she was accidentally introduced as the matriarch of the clan humanity. Although the matter was quickly corrected, the Lemma found humor in continuing to refer to her as matriarch in casual conversation. Janie had worked alongside several patriarchs from a dozen clans to ensure human interests on Condry were held, and to open avenues of trade between two homeworlds. And although she would be considered by many Earthlings to be a relatively unimportant political figure in the grand scheme, 
she was instrumental in building a positive relationship between our peoples. When she died on May 19, 2344, she was mourned on two worlds, but I would learn about her most amazing contribution in two days. The day of my interview with the Patriarch had arrived, and I was exploding with questions. The Patriarch, Deco Manma, to his credit, was very patient with me, answering as best as he could. As the interview went on, I stopped asking questions about Lenma, and my interest turned to the cat Bendassa to Aura and Janie Wessel. I was shocked to learn that the festival was actually only 30 years old. A newly founded tradition started by the clans, Ma Ma explained that they, of course, honored their dead for much longer, but never in the manner that they had after the death of Miss Wessel. As it turned out, Janie herself was responsible for the Cat Vendisa to Aura, becoming an annual festival for the Lenma. Ma Ma then took me out of his office into the foyer where a glass display case stood at the point of honor, containing a picture of Janie, as well as what appeared to be a quota day calendar. The quote of that particular day happened to be, They say you die twice, one time when you stop breathing, and a second time, a bit later on, when somebody says your name for the last time. A quote attributed to a 21st century artist named Banksy. But it is more properly quoted by an American professor, Irvin Yellum, and author David Eagleman. Patriarch Mama explained that after Wessel's passing, the clans came together and passed a unanimous legislation to create a festival that honored the idea of keeping the dead alive through speaking their names aloud. I felt, probably selfishly, flattered. Months later, when I returned to my office in London, my experience on Condry had not left me. I'm happy to say I take something positive away from every expedition I go on be it a trinket of good times, or even a new way of looking at the world. From Condry, I took away a small piece of colorful cloth with the name of Janie Wessel printed on it, which I keep in my wallet. Every once in a while, I'll see a teal or copper corner of the cloth sticking out, smile, and say Janie Wessel aloud to myself. Robert Applegate, National Geographic, August 7th, 2391. End of story. Story number two. Cracked Earth, written by Golganash. The Earth hive swarmed to the stars in the hundreds of billions, claiming every world that they got their claws on as their own. We fought valiantly, but we were beginning to lose hope as a seemingly endless sword punched into our territory like a knife. That was when we saw the true terror of humanity. Rather than accept the losses of their worlds, they ravaged their own planets, burning all biomatter, poisoning all water, occasionally even destroying it with the most powerful ship, the HFS Kraken. Despite their fierce fighting, or maybe because of it, the Irithai fought single-mindedly to get Sol, the human home system. Despite their billions of losses, they first tried to make the colony out of a dwarf planet, Pluto. That was at the outer edge, but the Kraken turned its space station-sized guns towards its own system and disintegrated the entire ball of ice. The Earth were determined, though, and managed to land on the human homeworld of Earth. We thought for sure the humans would give in, having lost their capital. But they kept fighting. 
They saw that they were going to lose their planet in advance and evacuated billions before the Iris made it. Then they destroyed it. Earth, their homeworld, with uncounted millennia of history, gone in an instant, taking with it hundreds of millions of Iris and almost as many humans who were unable to evacuate or sacrifice themselves to keep their plan secret. We were horrified, to say the least. They had sacrificed their homeworld and kept fighting. Their tactics became crueler and more extreme. They lost Sol, but their other systems increased their productions. The HFS Kraken received a sister ship, the HFS Slayer, and they began the unthinkable, almost as unthinkable as destroying their own planets. The two planet destroyers went through slipspace deep into Iris territory, to their home system, Araya, with only a few support ships to help protect and supply them. Then they repeated what they did to a dozen of their own planets to the half-dozen hive planets in the system, obliterating the Hive Queen. Then they warped out of the system before the disorganized and traumatized Iris could respond, slipping to every major system of theirs and mercilessly destroying their greatest planets, killing tens of billions of them with each planet. We were horrified. They had broken one of the primary rules of warfare. Do not destroy planets. We knew that we would have to pass judgment on them, but feared what we would do. For if they destroyed their own homeworld, how would they fight against us? They seemed unstoppable and bent on destroying every lost Iris. But when we turned to their home system a few years later, we saw a strange occurrence. The humans were building massive metal spheres where Earth had been, most of it barely a metal frame for it, with only a few island-sized sections and a sphere covered in carved metal. We asked them what it was, and they simply said, The Monument. We read the writing that was on the sections already there, and were stunned. It was the name of the humans, each of them. From one of the planets they had destroyed, millions of names were scattered across its surface, with drones constantly being updated with new deaths and carving their names into the monument. And it had only been started a year ago, with less than 5% of it complete. It would be a representative and reminder of the primal determination of humanity, and how they would succeed at any cost. We ended up letting them off with a warning once they'd finally ceased their efforts, having killed trillions of the iris and destroying their intelligence from their lack of their hive mind. For, to be honest, we were terrified. Humanity had shed its innocence, killing billions of their own to stop their enemy. We had thought that we were the most capable of war, for we had more advanced technology. But technology is no match for human insanity. But in the Iron Scourge, we learned that truth. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1413. Useless Rocks. Written by Catman. Aladrail Sars de Sidassi rode through the town. Her elven features drawing stares from the few who were out at the same time. 
She looked around at all the things that had changed since her last visit, and all the things that hadn't. The signboards had all changed. She didn't recognize any of her old haunts. A few hidden nooks that she'd found had disappeared, and unknown dark alleys had taken their place. On the other hand, it was still a sleepy little hamlet she remembered, still surrounded by miles of farmland, and old man Jenkins' scarecrow was still as terrifying as ever. There was no surprise, though. Every town seemed to have an old man who terrified the youths, and somehow the name Jenkins was inexorably linked to that station. She renumerated on the arcane nature of Jenkins' curse as she approached her destination. Her modest hut on the outskirts of town, isolated from the other buildings, with a small storage shed across the road. She dismounted and tied her horse to the nearest hitching post, then strode up to the door, only hesitated for a few seconds before wrapping firmly in the wood. Composing herself and standing tall as clanks and footsteps came from inside, followed by the door swinging inward to reveal shorter human, eyes staring into her chest for a moment before his head tilted up far enough to find her eyes. Aladrail peered down at the man before her. He certainly looked different than the last time the day had met. His black hair had started to streak with grey, and worry lines were carved into his brow. But the spark in those beady eyes was the same as she remembered. Xavier, it's good to see you again. Spirits above you have aged. I always forget how short lumen lifespans are. How are you doing? Xavier looked up at her, tilting his head from side to side and squinting through the darkness, before his eyes widened in surprise and his face lit up with a joyous grin. Aladrill, my God, I haven't seen you since that summer you brought me to meet your family and got conscripted. Uh, this is that war with the orcs over. She gave a tittling laugh and patted him on the shoulder. Oh, I've missed your human view and things. No, no, the, the war is still going. It's only been 30 years. I'm on leave for the next five years, though. You seem to have done quite well for yourself since I left. From what I hear, you're quite a popular amongst the locals. Xavier sighed, reminiscing for a moment. Uh, this has really been 30 years. Uh, it feels just like yesterday when we found that abandoned temple. And you certainly haven't lost any of your charm. Showing up unannounced in the dead of night. Just like old times. I'm afraid I'm not famous for the sort of mischief we used to get into. I just shared a few of my more menial inventions with them, and they keep my larder stocked. Oh, and speaking of which, just in time for my first test of my latest creation. Come in, we have so much to catch up on. He motioned to Eladrell inside, then shouted out the corner to the house. Bring me a chair! The two of them walked into the house, and Aladrell looked around to the crowded walls, packed with shelves, which were packed in turn with both books and mechanical devices of all sizes, cast in tin, bronze, iron, even a couple in gold. Some were displayed proudly on their own shelves, others were in heaps or served as paperweights and bookends, or, in the case of one particularly large metal contraption, as a doorstop. Xavier motioned proudly at the breadbox-sized contraption sitting on his workbench, the only tidy surface in the entire room. There it is, the tool that'll turn even the most clumsiest oaf into a master chef, the contraption that will... 
Clang, 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 clang. The device on the workbench let out a deafening series of clangs and ringing bells and started vibrating across the table. Alla Drail quickly clamped her hands over her sensitive ears as Xavier whirled back to yank up the lever to stop the noise, before rushing over to the stove and using a spoon to quickly fish an egg out of the boiling pot of water. And voila, one, hopefully, a perfectly boiled egg. The human beamed up at her, and Alla Drail stared at him dumbfounded, blinked several times as she slowly lowered her hands from her ears, before abruptly doubling over laughter. <laughs> oh, spirits above, you would subject yourself to that racket just for a well-cooked egg. That's just adorable. Xavier frowned and gesticulated with the egg as he indignantly replied. It's not adorable, it's revolutionary. One of these days, in every kitchen, would be an end to chalky yolks, an end to rubbery whites. Perhaps the bells need a little bit of fine-tuning. Aladrell stopped paying attention as the door opened and she looked up to see a six-foot-tall humanoid of solid metal trump through the doorway, dragging a wooden chair behind it. It was almost entirely featureless, with a flat surface where its base should be, broken by a single blue gem in the center. Xavier, sensing he had lost his audience, looked around, saw the new arrival and promptly strode over. No, Jabbage, carry the chair, don't drag it, put it over by the table. He looked at the table, realized that there was about an inch of various papers and mechanical bits covering it, and the chair, and added, And then clean off the table and chair, but it all... He looked around the room and, coming to terms with the fact that there wasn't a single remaining clear surface, pointed to a far corner of the floor. Just pile it over there. He turned back to Aladrail and motioned to the chair as it was brought over. Come sit, perhaps Xavier, excellent egg-timing device, isn't that interesting to you? But I'm sure, he paused at her deadpan face. Really? Nothing. Excellent. Egg of excellent. Because it, it, it makes eggs. Aladrail sat in the chair the golem had brought and answered in a flat tone, face betraying no amusement. I get the yolk. I just don't think it was funny. They stared at each other for a few moments, neither so much as twitching, before simultaneously breaking out into chuckles. Xavier sitting down in the nearly clean chair as the golem went to work at the table. But really, it's a nice device. It's just that there's already a spell for that. Her eyes sputtered half-closed as she muttered a few words and snapped her fingers, a steaming egg falling out of nowhere into her hand, where she quickly tossed it to the left and right as it called. That's all well and good, Xavier replied. But if you get a couple syllables wrong, you've got an angry demon rooster in your hand instead of an egg. Besides, it's not like every innkeeper has the ability for magic. But whatever. Maybe you'll be impressed by my greatest invention. He stood up and walked towards the shelf, fetching a bronze sphere, an iron cube. Actually, I was more interested in your golem friend there. It's rare to see one. Where did you find him? Xavier looked over his shoulder at the golem. Oh, that. Uh, actually, I found him hidden in a room of that temple we discovered. Useful for grabbing things sometimes, but not much else. Uh, I call him dumb as a brick brock. I suppose this is a golem I've heard the villagers talking about. You have him help out with the crops. Xavier shook his head. No, no. Brock just helps me out. The villagers just have some of my copies... Now let me show you this. If you put down the block on one piece and roll the ball over to them, 
Aladrail stared at her mouth open for a second before interrupting. Wait, copies. Are you saying you made more golems? But the secret of golem making has been lost for a millennia. How? Xavier stopped mid-sentence and raised an eyebrow. Well, I, I just made an extra gem and body and then etched the runes onto its face. What? An extra gem? You copied the golem's artificial soul? Impossible. Our top mages had been searching for the ritual for years without success. The human looked confused for a moment, then nodded. Oh, you mean the power core? He snickered and cocked his head a bit. It's not an artificial soul, it's just a gem etched with ruins to collect and store and channel natural mana. It was a bit tricky to get the first ones right, but I don't have to worry about that now. Aladrell stared at him for a moment before hesitantly asking, And what in the Thirteen Hells are the ruins? Xavier snickered and crossed his arms. Come on, stop playing around. You're an elf, the great masters of magic. You have to know about runes. Every time you cast a spell, you make a self-perpetuating chain of them that ripples out, and you have a desired effect. Well, in theory, uh, I, I wouldn't know how to observe them floating in the air, but anyways, have you uh, never looked closely at magic artifacts? The gnomes noticed them centuries ago, but none of them were able to sit still long enough to figure out what they meant. He sat there with a smug look in his face before returned to incredulity. Wait, you're serious? Aladrail slowly started to calm down as to reassert reality. I, uh, there have been some scholars who have theorized about more basic forms of magic, so, uh, put your, uh, n not manner, I suppose, but uh, you put your energy directly into the gem and, uh, bend it to your will? Uh, that, that, that makes a surprising amount of sense. Well, uh, sort of. I mean, it takes a little bit of work to get all the lines just right, but I've got columns to do that for me now. And just like that, the fragments of a sensible world Aladrell had scotch-taped around itself flew apart once more. Golems! Golems making more golems! But golems can't do magic! They never have been able to do magic! Xavier frowned and hefted the bronze ball that he was still holding. Neither can I! It's just scratching a few lines on a crystal and some stone. Besides, all it gets you is a useless hunk of rock. I mean, look at this. He handed the egg to the golem, standing at attention in the corner. Peel it! The golem took the egg and pinched the shell, fingers crushing right through and scooping the portion of white out. After a few moments, the shell was gone, but so was the white with some of the yolk. Xavier sighed and pointed to the mess on the floor. Now clean that up! He turned back to Aladrail and continued. See? Useless. I had to make extra tiny ones just to get them to have enough control to carve the runes. Besides, you're missing the point. He set the bronze ball back down on the floor and pressed a button. If you put down the sphere and activate it, it rolls directly towards the block, even if it's a little, little slope. Amazing, eh? The ball did indeed roll until it touched the block. Xavier looked up with a gleeful smile to see Aladrell's jaw still hanging open. Xavier continued, Okay, I'll admit they're useful, but this one brews good tea and can cook eggs if you tell him when to take them out, and the villagers really like the others, even that they take care of most of my day and day needs. That's why I've got a cave full of them. They make life easier, but look at this other thing. It spins when you sit it out in the sun. Pretty slow, but I bet if it was big enough it could replace a one and the drill interrupted once more, this time with an uncertain voice. Wait, 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 wait. A, a, a cave full of them. Just how many of these columns do you have? 
Xavier paused with the mouth open, then cocked his head and stroked his chin. Hmm, well, uh, a little over a year ago, I put two makers down in the cave, one with orders to make more golems, and the other with orders to make more golem makers. I've injected them since uh, that week. He yanked a sheet of paper and pencil from a pile and scribbled on the back, muttering to himself, one every two days, quadratic growth carries seven. He looked down at his work and paled then got up and walked towards the door. Um, I'm pretty sure my mouth is off. We should go check on them ourselves. He walked outside and motioned for Aladrell to follow. He hurried over to the shed and opened it, grabbing a lighting and a lantern before descending the spiral clay steps down into the cave below, followed by an increasingly panicked elf. As she reached the bottom of the stairs and looked out into the cave beyond, he sighed and faced palm. Damn it all! The math was right! Aladrail pushed past him and into the dimly lit cavern and gasped. The cave stretched as far as the lantern light reached, and even with her sharp alvin eyes, she couldn't see the end of it. And every foot was packed with golems, all working. Large ones were scraping the walls and forming the rocks into clay into new bodies, while finger-sized ones gathered quartz crystals from the rubble and carved minuscule figures onto the stones and the faces. How many are there? He sighed and muttered, Fucking quadratic growth, making my life harder. He spoke louder in reply, Somewhere around 20,000. I'm not certain exactly how fast they multiply. He shouted out into the cave, That's enough! Stop what you're doing! Back to muttering, he stared. Damn it! What am I supposed to do with all these? Kind of feel bad for ordering them all off a glove. Aladrell looked out over the veritable army of stone figures, and her eyes went from panicked to gleeful. In an instant, wait, 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 this could be perfect. The columns are good at combat, right? Xavier looked back at her in confusion. I mean, they're plenty strong, and the local lumberjacks love them since they can fell a tree in just a few strokes, but... Uh, his eyes widened, and he broke into a grin. But if they do that to a tree, imagine what they'll do to an orc. <laughs> yeah, do, do you think these could really affect the war? Aladrell turned to look at the horde of statues before her, now motionless. I don't know for sure, but there are old stories of a handful of war golems raising entire cities. These look a little less polished, but uh, 20,000 is easily half of our current army. If they fight half as well as the regular soldiers, the war could be over within a couple years. Xavier looked up at his childhood friend, standing beside him. If it'll end it within five, that's good enough for me. He turned to stare out at over the sea of useless rocks with the black faces, and his hand silently grasped Aladrail's in a dim light for a few long moments. Ah, I'm gonna have to take this to the king, aren't I? There's gonna be so much paperwork. Maybe I can create a device to fill out. He was cut off sharply as Aladrail salvaged a tender moment with a kiss. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1414 To each their own dominion, written by nothing is artificial. The station was just short of utter chaos. Not since the war had there been such activity aboard this rather remote station. And this time, there were no klaxons or evacuation orders. Strictly speaking, 
There weren't many more beings on the station and docked ships than the past few dozen short cycles. But this short cycle, this moment, nearly every being was in the main promenade of the station. I saw the Volner station manager stride forward as the walls undulated, bringing attention to the manager's destination, a raised yet battered platform. We are all here to remember, to mourn, to reflect, to celebrate. One hundred long cycles ago the war ended after nearly countless long cycles of occupation. The manager intoned somberly, as thousands of translators did their best to convey the words and meaning. Interspecies translation is always tricky, but there was little chance of misunderstanding why everyone was gathered here right now. The promenade erupted in a cacophony of approval. The station's atmosphere vibrated vigorously as the electromagnetic frequencies lit up chaotically. My translator helpfully told me the room was clapping. The station manager continued, May we never forget the price of self-determination. To each species, their own dominion. I screamed, To their own dominion! As the promenade filled with dozens of variants in a myriad of languages. Unusually tactful, my translator chose not to attempt to translate the obvious. And with that, the manager walked off the platform and the festivities began. I can't say I care for the Volna, but they're consistently concise, and I've always been fond of them for that, despite the fact that I'm well known for being long-winded myself. I found my way to one of the few establishments equipped to thoroughly intoxicate humans. It wasn't too packed and I got what passes for a seat by a dispenser. There was a reputable group of beings clustered around. If I had to bet, all but two of them came from prominent families. Considering the festivities, unsurprisingly, they were already engaged in the perennial speculation of who attacked the occupiers and forced them to sign the armistice. It was obviously biological. The Sirius probe recently showed a vast ecosystem destruction rot there, and there was no elevated radioactivity decay. The blue avian opposite me said, as my translator noted clear inebriation. Objections flew around the cluster. Most beings retorted with some variant of the leading theory. I took shot after shot as they spoke about how antimatter was somehow secreted to the planets and moons of the occupiers. Everyone agreed the worlds had been consumed by vast storms. They were consistent with meteor impacts, but only the craziest of conspiracy theorists thought meteors were actually involved considering any decent defense system would annihilate such a target. The occupiers had by far the most advanced technology in the galaxy. Their defense systems were in great excess of decent. What about the contrails? provoked the vaguely simian being seated to my left. I smiled quietly to myself as I slowly sipped on a not-quite-wine-like drink. I was credibly drunk now and just looking to maintain my non-sobriety. The blue avian opposite me loudly rustled their feathers, exposing silvery portions of the inside of their wings. It was beautiful and captivating, but my translator made it clear that this was a display of utter disgust. As their wings settled back into place, the verbal assaults on the primate began. Complete nonsense. It's preposterous to create contrails in a vacuum of space. There is no way to generate so much thrust exhaust that it would be observed from light long cycles away. You kooks can observe anything if you stare at Sensitator long enough. 
Most seated made the equivalent of nods as the avian finished their retort, except for the other simian sitting next to the first one. They looked like the same species to me, and in fact, I couldn't really tell them apart. They might have been related, but probably they weren't. Humans just didn't evolve to distinguish alien individuals from one another, even if they looked a bit like Terran apes. This maybe-related simian was having none of it. Thirty-three moons and planets were attacked. For three of these worlds, we observed contrails, and most of the other worlds weren't being observed. For one of them, two different observatories in different star systems saw the same thing. This is not a hoax. Just because only young races happened to observe this doesn't mean they were crazy. Before the avian could rustle their feathers, I started speaking. This was simply too opportune a moment to not join the conversation. The contrail theory might not be conclusive, but they are right about us young races not being taken seriously. I'm sure mine is the youngest in the group right now. We were the youngest at the time of the armistice, and only one race has entered the community since. There was a fair bit of minor confusion in the group. I'm a human, soul system. Our homeworld is Earth. Beings quickly consulted their translators, and a general sense of understanding and indifference filled the group. So, you're saying your people also believe the hoaxes? Interrogated the clearly intoxicated avian. No, we believe in evidence. The contrails theory is strange, but is it stranger than the occupiers being mysteriously attacked and ending the war only a few short cycles later? Well then, human, what do you think happened? The avian retorted. My species as a principle we like to use when solving problems. It's called Arkham's Razor. Not that I expect the translator for most of you. It says the simplest answer is often correct. Practically, everyone agrees the destruction was consistent with meteor impact. It's beyond improbable that many meteors by sheer chance simultaneously impacted the occupiers' worlds. And their defense system would have protected against typical meteors anyway. The simplest answer is a coordinated kinetic attack that evaded or overwhelmed their defenses. That all sounds reasonable, human, but yet makes no sense. There is a reason you young races aren't trusted. I don't suppose you know how their defenses were overwhelmed or evaded, the Avon retorted. Sure, accelerate a significant mass to near the speed of light. That'll overwhelm any planetary defense system that had only moments to respond. I replied, knowing that this was going to be deservedly challenged, but I was enjoying taking the evening along for the ride. Normally, I was more one for extensive monologues, but this drunk sparring was really hitting the spot right now. Again, your incomplete answer shows your lack of understanding of the occupiers, the avian said with disdain that I barely needed the translator to point out to me. You, of course, know they have FTL, and so they would intercept any inbound meteor well before collision if it were coming from out of the system. While I'll give you, if it were accelerated in-system, maybe it wouldn't be intercepted. It's preposterous to think an acceleration track could be covertly assembled or moved into the occupier's systems undetected. Perfect. 
So, we agree that near-light-speed kinetic bombardment, not intercepted by their FTL ships, might make it past the planetary defense system, I said with glee. A massive grin spread across my face as the translator indicated the avian, as well as almost everyone else nearby was confused by my enthusiasm. Yet, I undeniably held their attention. All the avian could muster was, yes, but I hardly see the relevance. I agree, it's preposterous to have snuck an acceleration track into one of their systems, let alone 33. All it would take is to figure out how to make near-light-speed objects not be intercepted by their FDL ships. Oh, of course, so simple. Just do the impossible, that's all. It's not as if we haven't all been trying to sneak things past the occupiers for <laughs> mega-cycles. The avian mocked. Sarcasm is a rare trait amongst intelligent beings, and is generally avoided in interspecies communication. Humans cared little for avoiding such behavior, and it was great to find a kindred spirit. The desire for at least a mini-monologue was rising up in me. The galactic community really is a nice place, minus the occupiers, that is. Us humans have enjoyed getting to know you all. You're very trusting, very open. We don't say this too often, and so bluntly, but your attempts at secrecy and evasion are... <laughs> cute. Earth had twelve geopolitical bodies when we entered the community. Surprised and confused looks all around. Perfect. Technically, we had one central one, uh, the United Nations, but it didn't do much. They just acted the part. We didn't lie to you all. We were just creative on how we answer your questions. Uh, I know. Almost all species have only one government, and three is outright scandalous. The thing about having so many different groups with different interests is you're constantly being attacked. Subtly, generally not with lasers and antimatter. Others out to get strategic information. You learn how to evade and infiltrate. Even great strategies get found out quickly and you constantly have to find new ones. During humanity's entire time observing the war, we saw you all trying variations of the same things over and over again. The improvements were staggeringly impressive, but utterly predictable. I definitely struck a nerve. Multiple beings started speaking over themselves at once until only one kept talking. The vaguely turtle-like being continued on. Not only are you foolish, you are arrogant. We may all despise the occupiers, but you seem incapable of learning from them. They occupied for so long because they had the technological advantage and relentlessly improved on it so we could not catch up. Their breakthrough invention of FTL gave them uncontested control of the galaxy, and despite megacycles, no other species has yet to develop FTL. Is it predictable others would try to develop FTL? Of course, because it is the right strategy. Is it predictable that we would improve our stealth shielding? Of course. Because if we kept it up, one day we might be able to evade their senses. History has shown the relentless pursuit of ever more capable technologies win. I'm certain your species were still trying to figure out fire while many of ours had already begun our long and ultimately successful fight against the occupiers. I'd enjoyed your sparring until now. But your arrogance is beyond tolerance. You clearly have no better theories and wish only to antagonize us. 
I had hoped to be more captivating and less insulting, but I'm just an astrographer and diplomatic communications aren't one of my specialties. I'd thought being genuinely drunk would have sufficed to smooth over my delivery, but I clearly miscalculated a bit. Hey, I was just trying to have some fun with you all. Sorry if I took it too far. I do have a better theory. You probably won't believe me anyway, but it explains everything. Even the contrails. The equivalent of eye rolls and laughter came from my semi-voluntary audience, with the exception of the simians. Yeah, full of nonsense, but it is entertaining nonsense. Go on, said the avian with some genuine enthusiasm. Kinetic payloads going 82% of the speed of light impacted each of those 33 worlds. The masses buried so the worlds would be devastated, but not destroyed, and would eventually recover, although, admittedly, probably with rather different ecosystems. The seriousness of my tone and word choice had an effect on my fellow beings. There was no mockery being displayed by them for the moment. I doubt they believed me, but they were listening intently. They were not detected by the occupiers because they're used to you all trying to hide things in space. Ever more absorbent materials, scattering arrays, better sensors, evasion patterns, and so on. These payloads were hidden in time. Do you all know the major principle behind the stasis field? About half the group seemed to. Many scientific ideas were pretty freely shared between species, but most species' technologies were radically different and had no practical way to incorporate one another's. Stasis fields were reasonably common, but by no means pervasive. The relevant part to my story, my theory that is, is the anchor. In a stasis field, the anchor is used to keep an object, typically a container or room, fixed in time. But the anchor can also be used with substantial constraints to recall an object back to the point in space and time where the anchor previously was. The recall time window is very short. Most of its applications are rather esoteric, as the energy requirements are substantial. Far higher than maintaining a stasis field. The avian and turtle-like beings both seemed to be following, as did one other. Everyone else appeared engaged, but not really understanding. Well, at least that's what my translator told me. To my eyes, most of them hadn't changed their appearance in the slightest. So imagine a cylinder moving in a straight line. The front of the cylinder is an anchor. The rear has a recall beacon. Once the rear of the cylinder is where the front used to be, recall the cylinder. The cylinder moves back in time, but its position in space doesn't change. The same cylinder is now directly adjacent to itself. That's not possible, said the avian after quite a pause. Well, it could happen, but the timing would have to be absolutely perfect, and the energy needed would make this impractical. The avian seemed intrigued and lost in thought. I had a feeling the avian must have worked in power generation or propulsion. This is a good audience. Right, so the cylinder contains a large amount of antimatter. The avian moved its wings in a way that was apparently a thoughtful, if slightly doubtful, nod. When this is done repeatedly, the cylinder will for an instant appear very long and travel the full length instantaneously. Contrails, the two simians shouted almost simultaneously. Preposterous, said the avian, but with a serious lack of conviction. Even if this is possible, this couldn't be maintained long enough to be more than a spectacle. This can't be the means of propulsion. 
I'd bet a lot this very smart, if skeptical bird worked in propulsion. I was making a mockery of his profession, I suppose. Oh well, best to break it in slowly over copious strings. You're right, of course. As I said before, the kinetic payload is moving at 82% of the speed of light. It has no propulsion system, per se. It's on a predetermined course. This keeps getting ever more absurd. But I am entertained, so it has no engines, no ability to manipulate thrust. Once it does a recall jump, it'll be immediately off course. It'll have instantaneously moved while the rest of the universe has not. It'll have no ability to course correct. Damn, this bird was sharp. I wonder if we had a trade relationship with their species. I bet they had some pretty impressive creations if this is how quickly they thought when they were drunk. Right again. So it needs to do a predetermined number of recalls, and that's part of the planned trajectory. The simple case is it does all of them once it gets to within a certain distance of the target world. Meaning it's moving instantaneously and cannot be intercepted, even by FTL ship. The group was silent for a while. I think most of them had generally followed, and the turtle and bird certainly had. The scenes just seemed happy I'd taken their side. That's quite a story, said the turtle, breaking the long silence. Thank you. My people are known for their creativity, I replied graciously. Humans are known for their creative stories, one of the simians said, clearly puzzled. No, although I think that's a shame. We have many wonderful stories. We're known for our creative solutions to very important problems. I said as I finished the last sip of my not-quite-wine. It was a pleasure swapping stories with you all, to each their own dominion. I shouted as I stumbled my way out of the bar. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1415 Disrespectful, written by Infernalism Larry's Lagrange Point was just your average dive bar. Imagine a small point in space where, due to the quirks of physics and gravity, things that float into that area stay there. It orbited a large gas giant that was being actively mined for its many gases, and so its patrons were of the rough and tumble variety. Miners, security, and the like. Larry was a former miner himself who won the rights to the little spot in a poker game 15 years ago. The point, as it was called, was a collection of three large asteroids connected by some commandeered transportation tubes, and, thanks to some illicit gravity generators, it had its own little gravity well and atmosphere. It was nothing special, but it was Larry's, and it was the best spot within a light year for getting smashed and smashing some faces. So naturally, on this lively Friday night, the miners and security were arguing politics and interstellar history. I'm telling you, you split base dunk, the Praxin hegemony is going to be the new power. Have you seen their ships? They're making use of some new anti-grav singularity for fuel source, and I've seen them go ten minutes full power blaster fire, and they didn't slow a single bit. The crews prided themselves on staying atop of galactic affairs which was in the midst of a three-century turmoil after the collapse of the Gremlin Star Empire, due to some new biological plague that seemed to only affect the Gremlin. They were still around, but every year came new reports of a new Gremlin sector falling to plague and collapse. 
complete with three dozen burgeoning empires invading and looting what they could. This would continue on until a new power rose to the top. The aforementioned slit-faced dog, Trig, insisted that the Praxen were the next big dogs of the block. Hey you, Praxen! The screen invaded their whole world and... The whole place erupted into laughter at that, bringing the disrespectful blather to a halt. It was almost like a ritual for galactic powers. The serene invade, demand a ritualistic surrender, and then they leave without taking anything. The smarter empires prepare for it, clearing the way and giving the serene no reason to do any real damage. Son, the serene invade everyone's whole world. It's what they do. It's like a religious thing for them. Name one power that they haven't invaded and gotten to surrender from. The Terrans. No, fuck off. The Serene never invaded. A new crash came when one of the named Terrans got to his feet. It wasn't a Terran. It was a Serene. Imagine a warthog and two legs, slightly less elongated face, full tusks, fully armored, and nearly 50% replaced with military cybernetics. Eight feet tall and thick as a transport hauler. The Serene didn't use projectile weapons and they compensated for this by having solid personal shields that dissipated energy blasts and drained kinetic energy from anything that impacted those shields. If you wanted to kill a Serene, you had to do it face to face, adding to their reputation and making it easier for the existing powers to justify a pointless surrender. The Terrans were a small group of traders and engineers out in one of the spiral arms, and they tended to stick to themselves. You didn't mess with them, and they didn't mess with you. They didn't invade worlds, and they stayed out of local politics entirely. Summed up, Terrans felt like there was enough galaxy for everyone, and saw no reason to fight for any of it. Hence the laughter and derision when the Terrans were mentioned as stopping the Serene. And yet... Here was one of the very same screen saying otherwise. Larry, being a businessman that he was, activated the overhead announcer. Serene, you tell us a story and your tab is cleared. Shouts and cheers came along with that announcement. The whole point wanted to know this one. The Serene glared about at all of them before saying something in Shreen that didn't translate before taking his seat again. When he spoke... The local mics caught it and filtered the serene story through the room. We found them waiting for us when we jumped into their system. Or tried to, anyways. They had established a network of jump destabilizers in a cloud surrounding their system, so we exited on the edge of what they called the Oort Cloud. They built stations throughout the cloud to protect the destabilizers. Our victory group wasn't enough to break through, so we had to call in for support twice. It was glorious. After shattering their defenses there, we moved inward and found that they'd established another layer of defense within the gas giant region. More destabilizers and more stations and now more battleships. It took us three standard weeks to break through. Thirty days. It wasn't glorious anymore. The Serene downed his drink and demanded another taking full advantage of his imminently clear tab to run it up a bit more. The whole time, they piped a never-ending stream of insults at us over the ship comms. Even when those were destroyed, we found other communication device automated to send out that stream of filth at us. 
We were at five victory recruit armies now, and we had decided that we would punish these Terrans when we finished conquering them. They'd defiled and blasphemed enough. The universe would be glad of our efforts. And due to their own defiance and pride, we set about pillaging their outer worlds for their resources. We filled the system behind us with mining ships and pillaging craft. So we continued inward. The next line of defense was their asteroid belt. They'd heavily mined their belt and left only a single gap for us to go through. We knew what to expect there, so we ignored the gap and threw two victory groups at the belt itself. They were destroyed, but opened enough of a hole for us to get through. The victory commander declared this a holy war, and five more victory groups joined us. It was the largest victory that we had ever seen assembled. We were honored to be there. After shattering their belt defenses, we moved in towards their final defenses. Their moon was the center point of those defenses. In the middle of those attacks, we found our ships being attacked from behind by automated mass drivers from hidden spots within their belt. More ships were brought in to intercept those asteroids and to backtrack them to their launcher. There was open talk of turning the conquered Terran homeworld into a rarely built temple world. Such was their heresy and disrespect. We shattered their moon into a thousand pieces and spit upon their gods. Our leaders summoned even more victory groups, for it had been decided that we would not give them the honor of glorious death by hand. We would better their world from afar. We would melt into a cinder, wipe away the filth, and rebuild it into a new world. Instead, we had the Terrans taught us even more from the surface. They built scores, hundreds of city-sized complexes, devised and designed to defeat an invading army. Each city would have to be taken my hand, if they wanted the glory of that victory, and they dared us, dared us to come and get that glory. We could not call ourselves serene if we ignored this challenge to our honor and to our gods. The holy war continued, and our ships descended. Every victory group in the spiral arm was called in, even with every serene that came to call. It would take years to break them and conquer their world. It was no longer a ritual, but a very challenge to our spirit. We would destroy them. A hundred victory groups joined us and descended. Their world was split up among the groups, and honor demanded all be allowed to begin the assault at the same time. But I wasn't there. I was one of those that had failed to break through the Oort Cloud at the start of our crusade, so I was obliged to stay behind and watch the others retrieve my honor for me. In those moments before the assault officially began, the near-constant stream of slurs and insults and blasphemy that the Terrans had steadily bombarded us with abruptly came to a stop. All over the system, it all stopped at once. 
A new message was direct link straight to the Crusade's flagship, directly to the Victory Commander. I don't know what it said, but moments later, their star went supernova. We heard the reports before we saw the flash, and so our ships were able to escape. Of the 137 victory groups in our crusade formation, 17 victory groups escaped the supernova's shockwave. We reported back to Shreen, and we were told that the crusade never happened. We were told by our leaders to never speak of it to other Shreen ever again. And since you're not Shreen, they can fuck off. I heard later that the Terrans were in another system now, not far from their old one, and were busily terraforming it to resemble their world that they had sacrificed. Officially speaking, the Serene do not consider the Terrans a worthy target for victory. But it happened. So let me tell you something. If you want to go to war with the Terrans, you better be prepared to fight a group willing to destroy everything that they have to deny you victory. Not even to win, but just to see you lose. With that, the Serene went silent and finished his drink. The conversation moved on to sports, and the Serene left. His tab cleared. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers. I'd just like to thank the T5 members and Patreons. Alithia, Barky, Fudicule, Meridian117, Cam Maxwell, Casper, Arnholtz, Albard and Gusta, Lord Ashrakal, and White Van 420.